Hey, everybody, this is Daryl Cooper, and you're listening to the Martyr Made Podcast. You're about to hear the third episode of God's Socialist, The Rise and Fall of People's Temple, better known as the Jonestown Suicide Cult. If you haven't heard the first two episodes, I highly recommend you go back and start at the beginning and listen to this chronologically. It's a very deep and in-depth story, and if you miss anything, it, it, it can be maybe a little bit hard to keep up. If you enjoy this one, please do consider subscribing to my Substack page where I post supplemental writings and exclusive podcast episodes available to subscribers only for just $5 a month or $50 a year. You can find that at martyrmade.substack.com. To all of you who are already contributing, you, you guys uh, allow me to do this, uh, and I really appreciate it. I hope you guys like this one. Here we go. I'm content to die for my beliefs. So cut off my head and make me a martyr. The people will always remember it. No. They will forget. Hell does exist. God is a thought. God is an idea. It is a place. It is somewhere. Hell does exist. But its reference is to something that transcends all things. Why we must tear ourselves apart for this small question of religion? People of hope and goodwill had been fighting a defensive battle for the rights of black people in the United States for a long time since before the Civil War, but the first offensive front in the modern civil rights movement was probably opened in 1954, when the Supreme Court ruled in Brown v. the Board of Education to outlaw segregation in public schools. Everyone knew that this was likely the first shot in what could be the final assault on the Jim Crow racial caste system in the South, because the ruling applied to schools, but its reasoning could be extended to other domains. People knew that before long, challenges to segregation would be piling up and the federal government was going to attempt to force integration on the South. In December 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus to a white rider and she was arrested for her disobedience. I've spoken to a few people who who have a common misconception about what happened with the idea that she was sitting in the whites-only section of the bus and refused to move to the colored section. But what actually happened was she was already sitting in the colored section, and when the white section filled up, she refused to give up her seat in the colored section to let a white person ride. Within a few days, black community leaders had organized a boycott of the Montgomery bus system to shine a spotlight on this next front in the battle for desegregation. Out of the boycotts, a young minister named Martin Luther King Jr. would emerge as the inspirational leader of this fledgling civil rights movement in America. In the aftermath of the boycott, Martin Luther King reflected on the events in an essay called On the Violence of Desperate Men. And he recalled how, how soon he had begun receiving threatening phone calls and letters, 30 to 40 threatening phone calls and letters per day by January 1956, just a month into the boycott. And the messages warned him to get out of Montgomery or else he and his family were going to face violent consequences 
Others attempted to use the Bible to argue for segregation, and, and King would actually try to debate these people on the issue, and they would call him on the phone. Others were just vulgar threats of violence against him. Many were sexual in, in nature, directed against his wife, Coretta. And many were just simple harassment, calling and then hanging up over and over and over throughout the night when he and his wife picked up the phone, things like that. And so this went on and on. And he could hear not only their words when they'd call, the threats, but the tones of their voice. The rage, the real rage and hatred that, that you have to be able to hear someone's voice to, 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 to really sense directed at him. Bullying and harassment's one thing. That kind of rage is another altogether, and it's disturbing to have it actually directed at you. And it disturbed him. He, he began to worry for the first time that something could actually happen to him. At a mass meeting, he was speaking off the cuff while this anxiety was gnawing at him, and he said to those gathered at the meeting, If one day you find me sprawled out dead, I do not want you to respond with a single act of violence. I urge you to continue protesting with the same dignity and discipline you've shown so far. And this hadn't come out merely as high-minded rhetoric. It had come out of a place of real anxiety. One of the things I have to remind myself all the time, because it's hard to believe, really, is that Martin Luther King Jr. was only 26 years old when the bus boycotts made him a national leader of the civil rights movement. This is a young man with a young wife and baby daughter. He believed in his cause, of course, but he was afraid, as anybody would be. When he spoke those words at the meeting, the crowd got real silent at the prospect of, of him dying. You know, they weren't privy to the threats and harassment he'd faced, so the comment had caught them off guard. And a little bit later, he tried to put them all at ease, saying, you know, he's merely stating a general principle, but the people who were closest to him and had known him for a long time, they knew better that something was wrong. So his friend, the Baptist minister, Ralph Abernathy, kind of pressed him on the issue. And King tries to evade, and, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing's wrong. But Abernathy knew him well, and he persisted, and he left King no options but to either shut him out or lie, or else just tell him the truth, tell him what had been happening. And so he confided in his friend about the threats. He told him of a conversation he'd had with a white friend recently who had warned him of specific threats against his life. And he told him that he was, you know, he told him he was afraid. The, the threats continued. You know, nearly every day someone came and told him that they'd heard white men making plans against him. And every night, you know, the, the nights were the worst. Sleep is a very vulnerable state to a man with people after him. You know, next to your wife and child. Like, how do, you, how do you let go of your worry and let yourself slip into the defenselessness of sleep when throughout the day you fielded letters and phone calls from people threatening to murder you? One night, around the end of January, he was alone, awake at nighttime, middle of the night, and he got a call. Listen, nigger, we've taken all we want from you. In one week, you'll be sorry you ever came to Montgomery. And that was it. And so he, he's pacing in his kitchen. He makes a cup of coffee, but he just watches it get cold. He tries to think of ways to back out of his leadership position in the movement without looking like a coward. At his wit's end, he just sits down at his kitchen table, and he takes a breath, and he begins to pray. 
and he's there alone at, you know, two, three in the morning at his kitchen table, uh, praying, he's praying out loud and he's praying, he's asking just for the strength to go on for the next day that he can get up the next day and, and get through it. And he got that strength. And three nights later, January 30th, he's at another mass meeting. His wife Coretta is at home with her baby and a friend who had come to keep her company while Martin was gone. And around 9.30 at night, she heard what sounded like a brick on the front porch. And a few seconds later, boom, a bomb explodes. Near the end of the meeting, Martin Luther King sees a young assistant run up to give his friend Ralph Abernathy a message. And he sees Ralph Abernathy's face. He sees the, the worried look and, and his posture upon receiving this message. And so you know, he's, he's up by himself. He's on, he's on a stage, but word is spreading to people in the crowd and people are beginning to look up at him. And, uh, you know, somebody would come up and, and start to try to approach him, uh, somebody who had heard, but one of his aides would stop him and, you know, shoo them off. So he knows something's wrong. Something's going on at least. And, and so he says, okay, enough is enough. He demanded to know what's going on. And so Ralph Abernathy tells him that his house had been bombed. And uh, King's first question was after his wife and baby. And Abernathy had to tell him, you just think about this in a real-life situation, he had to tell him that they didn't know yet if his wife and baby were okay or if they were even alive. And so King calls for the attention of the meeting. He, he explains to everybody, the people who didn't know yet why he had to leave, and he asked them all to go straight home after the meeting. And he implored them specifically not to become panicky or to lose their heads. He said, let us keep moving with the faith that what we are doing is right and with the even greater faith that God is with us in the struggle. And then he leaves. And so he's driven home. And when he gets there, he finds hundreds of angry black residents in front of his house. Police were there holding him back, but the crowd is keyed up talking back to the police. Some are shoving and jostling with the cops and many in the crowd are armed. And so King rushes into the house and he finds that his wife and daughter are okay. As it happened, Coretta and her friend had raced to the back of the house when they'd heard the bang on the front porch. And uh, there's a good possibility that if they had instead gone to the porch to investigate what the sound was, the results might've been very different. The mayor, the police commissioner, and a bunch of news reporters had already arrived and set up shop in his house by the time he'd gotten there. Uh, the mayor and the commissioner expressed regret over what had happened. Um, and so King looks outside and finds that more black people were arriving as word is spreading around town. And the crowd's getting more and more agitated. The reporters wanted to leave to go get their stories out, but they were afraid to leave the house. And so Martin Luther King walks outside and he asks for order. And in a single moment, the crowd goes dead silent. He lets them know that he and his family are all right. And he asks them to keep their cool. He said, if you have weapons, take them home. If you don't have weapons, please don't try to get any. And then on his porch to this crowd, he delivers a brief impromptu sermon. Quote, we cannot solve this problem through retaliatory violence. We must meet violence with nonviolence. Remember the words of Jesus. 
He who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. We must love our white brothers, no matter what they do to us. We must make them know that we love them. Jesus still cries out in words that echo across the centuries. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. This is what we must live by. We must meet hate with love. Remember, if I am stopped, this movement will not stop, because God is with this movement. Go home with this glowing truth, this radiant assurance. End quote. And then he asked them to go home in peace. And there were shouts of, Amen, and we're with you, brother, and, and, and all that. And So then the police commissioner comes up and tries to speak to the crowd. But as soon as he stands up there, he's just immediately met with a shower of, Boo! Boo! And so the police, you know, using the uh, approach that <laughs> they're trained to use, I suppose, try to get the crowd under control and force them to pay attention. Uh, you know, everybody shut up, the commissioner is speaking, and so forth. But it just has the opposite effect, of course. Booze turned to hostility. And so Dr. King raises his hand for silence and asks the crowd to hear the commissioner. The crowd becomes still, and the commissioner speaks offering a reward for information on the bombing and a few platitudes, and with that, the crowd dispersed. Reflecting on the incident later, Dr. King remembered struggling against bitterness himself throughout this process. He thought of the inflammatory statements of the mayor and the commissioner who were now expressing their regret over what really their own words had helped foster and embolden. He thought of his wife and his daughter dead, blown to pieces on the porch. But he wrote, I was once more on the verge of corroding hatred, but I told myself, you must not allow yourself to become bitter. I tried to put myself in the place of city commissioners. I said to myself, these are not bad men. They are misguided. They have fine reputations in the community. In their dealings with white people, they are respectable and gentlemanly. They probably think they are right in their methods of dealing with Negroes. They say the things they say about us and treat us as they do because they have been taught these things. From the cradle to the grave, it is instilled in them that the Negro is inferior. Their parents probably taught them that. Their schools they attended taught them that. The books they read, even the churches and ministers often taught them that. And above all, the very concept of segregation teaches them that. The whole cultural tradition under which they've grown, a tradition blighted with more than 250 years of slavery and more than 90 years of segregation, teaches them that Negroes do not deserve certain things. So these men are merely the children of their culture. When they seek to preserve segregation, they seek to preserve only what their local folkways have taught them is right. Um, you know, it's inadequate to speak of Martin Luther King Jr. as a rare man. The kind of equanimity and generosity of spirit uh, that I just quoted after an incident like I just described. And I remind you, in, in a man just passing his 27th birthday, um, you know, that's earned him his spot as something like a saint in the American civic religion. Uh, not long after the bomb on King's porch, a stick of dynamite was thrown onto the lawn of another local activist. 
when King reflected on this attack shortly after it happened, he didn't focus on, you know, its viciousness or irrationality, but spoke of it as yet another test of the nonviolent approach, another opportunity to demonstrate their commitment to nonviolence. As the large crowd that assembled at the site of the attack again dispersed with shouts of amen and they returned to their homes in peace. It was another victory for nonviolence. That's how he wrote about that. Not how could they do this, oh, just another one of these mindless attacks. It was, it was an, another opportunity to prove the point. In any case, King's friends were urging him to hire a bodyguard, an armed watchman to guard his home. And he refused. But those friends called on other friends to support their position, and there's a lot of pressure on him, and so he agreed to consider it. But after giving it a lot of thought, he still refused saying, how could I be a leader of a nonviolent movement and yet use weapons of violence for my personal protection? He discussed the issue with his wife, Coretta, and together they agreed to leave off the use of guns completely. They even went into the closet and dug out the old revolver they'd had for many years and got rid of that. To mollify his friends and Coretta's distressed parents, they had floodlights installed on the roof of their house and agreed to allow volunteer unarmed watchmen to look after them at night. Shortly after the bombing, on February 9th, a grand jury was convened to deal with Martin Luther King and the others who were participating in the bus boycott. The unorganized violence of the mob had failed to end the demonstrations, and so now the organized violence of the state was going to be brought to bear against them. About a week later, the grand jury, composed of 17 whites and one black member, determined that the boycott was illegal and issued over 100 indictments. And when King was indicted, he was out of the state. He was in Nashville delivering a series of talks. His friend Ralph Abernathy told him of the indictments on February 21st and informed him that the arrests were to begin the next morning. Reverend Abernathy was on the list of those to be arrested, King said that he was going to cut his trip short and return to Montgomery to face the law with everyone else, and so he booked a flight to leave the next day. At this point, the black people of Montgomery had been marching for 13 weeks, facing threats and harassment with very little sign of progress. And King worried that these mass arrests were going to break the movement, so he wanted to return as quickly as possible to rally their spirits. First, he flies to Atlanta to collect his wife and daughter who had been staying with his parents while he traveled to Nashville. When his parents retrieved him from the airport, he was distressed to see the toll that the strain of events and the, and the worry over their son had been taking on them. You know, they seemed to have aged even since the last time he saw them. It was visible in how they walked and in the expressions they carried on their faces. His mother had been committed to bed rest by a doctor after the bombing of King's home, and his father was suffering emotional breakdowns. A long-time fighter for the cause, and a strong, tough guy, his father could now hardly speak of the boycotts without tears. King's father urged him not to return to Montgomery. He pointed out that the prosecutions were, were not in good faith, and that he was under no obligation to treat them as if they were. He said, Martin, you might be thrown in prison, and once you're there, who knows what might happen. And, and, and King listened and later recalled, I was profoundly concerned about my parents. I was worried about their worry. I knew that if I continued the struggle, I would be plagued by the pain that I was inflicting upon them. 
But if I eased out now, I would be plagued by my own conscience reminding me that I lacked the moral courage to stand by a cause to the end. No one can understand who has not looked into the eyes of those he loves knowing he has no alternative but to take a dangerous stand that leaves them tormented. His father couldn't break Martin's resolve to return to Montgomery, so he asked his son to at least stay around long enough to discuss the issue with some friends, and out of respect, Martin agreed. So his father calls on friends, and these are black business leaders from Atlanta, uh, the president of Morehouse College, other venerable men from the Atlanta black community. And once they were assembled, his father laid out his case, laid out the reasons for his case that his son should stay in Atlanta and protest the treatment of the Montgomery prisoners from there. And Dr. King remembered, quote, There were murmurs of agreement in the room, and I listened as sympathetically and objectively as I could while two of them gave their reasons for concurring with my father. These were my elders, leaders among my people. Their words commanded respect. But soon I could not restrain myself any longer. I must go back to Montgomery, I protested. My friends and associates are being arrested. It would be the height of cowardice for me to stay away. I would rather be in jail for ten years than desert my people now. I have begun the struggle, and I can't turn back. I have reached the point of no return. End quote. His, tensions, uh, his intentions made clear. Uh, his father wept, uh, but the assembly of friends... Moved by Dr. King's resolve, they swung, they changed their positions and swung their support to Dr. King returning to Montgomery, and they did their best to put his father at ease. Back in Montgomery, Dr. King's greeted by Ralph Abernathy, who had been jailed earlier but was out on bail. Driving Dr. King to the jail to turn himself in, Abernathy told him of how on the morning of the arrests, the people had gladly rushed to the jail to offer themselves up. Many went to see if they were on the list and went away disappointed when they weren't. They had not been broken by the arrest, quite the opposite. Martin Luther King Jr. was photographed and fingerprinted before being released on bond to return for trial on March 19th. And on the day of the trial, the whole world is present. Ministers and community leaders from across the U.S., over 500 black supporters lining the halls of the courthouse. You've got press from Europe, India, around the world waiting to report on the outcome. And for four days, the state attempts to prove that King's role in organizing the Montgomery bus boycott was a violation of the law. The defense, for its part, brought 28 witnesses in an attempt to demonstrate that the boycott was predicated on a just cause. These witnesses were ordinary black bus riders telling stories of their experiences with the Montgomery bus system. Mrs. Stella Brooks told the court of how her husband, having climbed aboard a bus and paid his toll, was told to get off and reboard the bus by the back door. Looking back and seeing all the back seats were taken, he said that he would just get off the bus and walk to his destination, just give him back his 10 cents. The driver refused, and Brooks insisted, and so the driver calls the police. A cop arrives, orders Brooks off the bus, but Brooks says he just wants his dime back, and in the ensuing minutes, Brooks is shot and killed by the police officer. Another woman, Mrs. Martha Walker, told of leading her blind husband down from the bus after her ride. 
She had stepped off, but as her husband attempted to follow her, the driver slammed the door and began to drive off, and her husband's leg was caught and he was dragged down the street before coming loose. She reports the incident is totally ignored. Another woman, Sadie Brooks, testifies that she witnessed a black passenger berated by a driver for not having the correct change, and finally the enraged driver pulls out a pistol and drove the man from the bus. Mrs. Della Perkins was called an ugly black ape by a driver. And witness after witness is paraded up to the stand with stories of indignities big and small. Remarkable precisely because of how common they were. And this was different than simple segregation. It was a problem. It was was a program of normalized degradation operating at the person-to-person level and endorsed by institutions. Jim Crow or not, segregation or not, how could anyone be expected to put up with such treatment on a regular basis? This was the defense's case. They, they made the case that a nonviolent protest was a perfectly moderate and appropriate response to these kind of conditions. But in any case, the judge found Martin Luther King Jr. guilty and ordered that he either pay a fine of $500 plus court costs or else spend 386 days at hard labor. He said he was giving a minimum sentence because of what King had previously done to prevent violence in the community. Um, Dr. King's supporters naturally left angry and dejected, many of them weeping, many of them just shouting uh, as they left the courthouse. But King did not share their feelings. He later said, I left my trial with the feeling of sympathy for Judge Carter and his dilemma. To convict me, he had to face the condemnation of the nation and the world opinion. To acquit me, he had to face the condemnation of the local community and those voters who kept him in office. Throughout the proceedings, he had treated me with great courtesy, and he rendered a verdict which he probably thought was the best way out. You read through the story of Martin Luther King Jr.'s life, and again, this is just the very beginning of the movement. It's impossible not to be uh, awed by his patience. In conviction, And yet at the same time, for those of us who will not have monuments built one day to celebrate our virtues, so most of us, uh, it can be exasperating sometimes. You know, there's a part of us, the part that rooted for Killmonger when we watched the Black Panther movie that thinks, no, 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 why is he making excuses for this judge? And I respect what he's saying on a conceptual level, but at a certain point, enough is enough. You know, but... There's no more radical prescription in the Bible than to love one's enemies. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's tough. That's really tough. But he's still your neighbor. Love your enemy is an almost inhuman demand. And not only because of base emotions, not only because of desires for revenge, but because on some level it offends our sense of justice. You know, it's important to remember that at the time all this is going on, and we have, a, we, we have a different view of it now. All of this has happened. We know how it turns out. The people following Martin Luther King at this time, they don't know how things are going to turn out. They don't know that one day he'll have monuments built to him in Washington, D.C., and that in a few decades, more or less, everybody will have come around to the realization that he was on the right side of this, even if the issues he was raising have not been you know, resolved. At the time, in the thick of it, they had to contend with the possibility that he could just end up dead and forgotten 
killed by the enemy he was saying to love as the enemy celebrated his demise and the demise of his movement. And so when you hear about a bomb going off on his porch, you want to defend him. You want to strike back. And when he tells you not only that you cannot strike back, but that you must learn to love the bombers with the faith that love is powerful enough to puncture through the fog of hatred. You know, you do it out of respect for the man, out of maybe out of faith that he has seen further than you have and he knows the way because he himself is providing a living example of what he's preaching. But, but man, you know, it doesn't quiet that, that ancient limbic part of yourself that wants to fight back. That's especially true among young people. You know, young people are always looking for a little action and they're less risk averse and they have less of a sense of what's already been gained and so less fear of losing it. You saw it among the young white people joining groups like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or SNCC formed out of the Greensboro sit-ins in 1960 and, and which played such an important role in the Freedom Rides of 1961 and then in the subsequent politics of confrontation and direct action that would grow out of these protests. But you really began to see it among the blacks in northern cities where something was shifting in ways that were really unprecedented in American history. A lot of attention is paid to the ugliest and most brutal parts of the first few hundred years of the black American experience, of the hardest edges of slavery and lynchings and Jim Crow. But, but in, in a lot of ways, it's the smaller things. It's the little daily indignities with which people are forced to deal, with which Wives are forced to watch their husbands deal, and children watch their parents deal quietly, submissively, because if you don't, the consequences can escalate to the ugly and brutal very quickly. That's what creates a simmering resentment and an implacable kind of pride. Not, not self-respect, but the kind of pride the Bible warns about that can make you belligerent and sensitive to slight and that eventually builds into a backlash once the lid comes off. Reflecting later, King wrote about the psychological processes involved in the radicalization of many people in his movement in the 1960s. Quote, For years, the Negro has been taught that he is a nobody, that his color is a sign of his biological depravity, that his being has been stamped with an indelible imprint of inferiority, that his whole history has been soiled with the filth of worthlessness, all too few people realize how slavery and racial segregation has scarred the soul and wounded the spirit of the black man. The whole dirty business of slavery was based on the premise that the Negro was a thing to be used, not a person to be respected. The historian Kenneth Stamp in his remarkable book The Peculiar Institution has a fascinating section on the psychological indoctrination that was necessary from the master's viewpoint to make a good slave. He gathered the material for this section primarily from the manuals and other documents which were produced by slave owners on the subject of training slaves. Stamp notes five recurring aspects of this training. First, those who managed the slaves had to maintain strict discipline. One master said, Unconditional surrender is the only footing upon which slavery should be placed. Another said, The slave must know that his master is to govern absolutely and he is to obey implicitly, that he is never for a moment to exercise his will or judgment in opposition to a positive order. Second, 
the masters felt that they had to implant in the bondsmen a consciousness of personal inferiority. This sense of inferiority was deliberately extended to his past. The slave owners were convinced that in order to control the Negroes, the slaves had to feel that African ancestry tainted them, that their color was a badge of degradation. The third step in the training process was to awe the slaves with a sense of the master's enormous power. It was necessary, various owners said, to make them stand in fear. The fourth aspect was the attempt to persuade the bondsmen to take an interest in the master's enterprise and to accept his standards of good conduct. Thus, the master's criteria of what was good and true and beautiful were to be accepted unquestioningly by the slaves. The final step, according to Stamp's document, was to impress Negroes with their helplessness, to create a habit of perfect dependence upon their masters. Here, then, was the way to produce a perfect slave, accustom him to rigid discipline, demand from him unconditional surrender, impress upon him a sense of his innate inferiority, develop in him a paralyzing fear of white men, train him to adopt the master's code of good behavior, and instill in him a sense of complete dependence. End quote. The NBA Hall of Famer Bill Russell was originally from Monroe, Louisiana, uh, the hometown of a very important person we're going to talk to in the second, I talk about in the second half of this. And Isabella Wilkerson, in her book, The Warmth of Other Sons, describes two incidents that happened to his parents when he was a kid. You know, and again, it's not a lynching, um, it, but it's, it's just, it's one of those more daily things. Once his father was waiting to fill up at a gas station, and the owner or attendant, uh, the, the person working there, made him wait until the white people were all finished filling up. And just as they were about to finish, another white person pulled up, and he had to wait again. And this goes on for like 30 minutes. Until finally, he tries to pull out just to go find another gas station, and the man working the gas station puts a shotgun in his face and makes him sit there and wait his turn. Another time, Russell's mother was walking outside in a nice dress. Uh, his parents were teachers. You know, they weren't just very poor sharecroppers. They, they didn't make a lot of money, but she had, she had a nice dress on, and she was stopped by a white policeman in order to go home and change her clothes because a dress like that was white woman's clothing. And who did she think she was walking around like that? When you've been raised in an environment like this your whole life, when your parents and grandparents were raised in it, and just like in the days of feudalism with the peasantry and the aristocracy, there's a whole range of symbols and rituals and rules and habits that are, are built in subtle and overt ways into the society to daily reinforce the hierarchy and to police the boundaries between classes. You can come to take it all for granted. Even to think of your station as part of the natural order of the universe, you know, a blasphemy against nature and, and nature's God to challenge. Except not quite. You know, never quite. We're still human beings. We all still come off the rack with an inborn sense of justice, for, for lack of a more precise way of putting it. Even if it proliferates in diverse ways, there are always a few constants. You know, no one thinks it's okay to, you know, no culture thinks it's okay to lie to and betray your family and friends, for example. And, and if there's one or two tribes in New Guinea out there, the exceptions prove the rule. And no one can observe, much less experience themselves, hierarchy that's either abused or 
unmerited, without getting a certain feeling in the stomach that's familiar to everybody in any society at any point in history. That's what a bully is. On a school playground with no adults around, being 20 pounds heavier than all the other boys is enough to raise your status in the hierarchy, and, and fine, whatever. It works for most of the animal kingdom. But when the bigger kid uses his status to harass weaker kids without provocation, he's abusing an unearned station. And we all know that when we see it, and we don't like it. Even if we're cowardly and try to suck up to the bully, or even if we feel that that deep, you know, limbic deep evil reaction of taking vicarious pleasure in the persecution, that that sick relief of the herd animal, knowing that someone else has been picked off and the predator has been sated for now, we still know what we're watching. And somewhere deep down, we all feel diminished when we just let it pass. Well, this was the hope of Martin Luther King, that by remaining nonviolent in the face of violence, and by trying with whatever strength you had to love in the face of hate, that empathy would eventually be awakened in enough white people that the collective conscience would change its shape. You know, he would point out that the brutal southern sheriff was good to his family, good to his friends, good to his countrymen. They even That brutal southern sheriff even stopped to help strangers on the road. They just needed to be shown that black Americans were their friends and their countrymen as well. It was cultural inertia that planted and cultivated these ideas, but the same conscience that these men exercised in their dealing with their friends will apply to us, black Americans, eventually, if we just have the faith to love our enemy. And that's the thing. His faith in the humanity of the enemy was a product of his faith in Christ. Which is not to mark that off as a necessary precondition of the outlook. Uh, Gandhi, by whom... Dr. King was greatly influenced, found his own way to that insight by other means, but King got there and stayed there despite strong opposing winds due to his Christianity. But not everybody was coming from that place. And when you're not anchored by something in which you have faith with roots that go below the expediencies and changing circumstances of the moment, it becomes very hard to see the reasons not to punch the bully in the face once you've woken up to the arbitrariness of the prevailing hierarchy. It's certainly not to have respect for it or, or for the system that had resulted in it and continued to reinforce it. Martin Luther King, when he spoke, recalled the Constitution. He quoted the Declaration of Independence. You know, he, he cited the Bible to support the justice for his cause, which, in, in other words, he was using the language of, of white Americans. But to some, only a few at first, but a strong few. You know, this was like fingernails on a chalkboard. Especially to those blacks who were born in or had made their way to the northern cities during the Great Migration. You know, it's rare for first-generation immigrants from foreign countries to organize themselves politically in opposition to the majority population. They're too busy trying to get by and make a living. Maybe keeping their heads down trying to stay out of trouble. It was the same with African-Americans of the Great Migration as they moved into their new homes in the North. They're just trying to get by and establish some kind of stability in their lives. In, in, in any case, they were comparing their new life to the only thing that they'd ever known, the Jim Crow South. You know, I find I've got to stretch my imagination pretty far to get a picture of what a leap it was in 
the way people thought about themselves and their place in American society, what, what a leap it took to go from hoping to get by without harassment and mistreatment to organizing to make positive political demands against the will of the white majority. It's a big leap. But more and more people are making that leap as the migration continues. You know, 200,000 black Americans served overseas in World War I. Nearly 400,000 served overall. You participate in something like that, and you're liable to come back with different expectations of the country whose call you answered. You know, just living in the officially desegregated North had its effects as well. Many blacks reported that examples of discrimination and direct insult were actually more common when they reached the North than they had been in the South. In the South, there were rules, and everyone knew what they were. Uh, you know, you didn't go to the whites-only lunch counter. It, it just was not done. But in the North, there were no whites-only lunch counters, uh, at least not officially. You had, to, you had to ask to be served and then refused in order to find out that your kind weren't welcome there. And so an incident like that that you just wouldn't have encountered in the South because you just there are signs up to avoid it. Uh, you know, things like this, these little these little indignified confrontations in some ways were more frequent. But there's also the other side of it uh, to living in the North. You know, whatever the real world limitations, um, the North was officially desegregated and living under conditions where that's at least a possibility, if only a possibility, it changes your expectations. Black train riders who were visiting family back in the South, they would reach a point on the journey down south where the train would stop and they would all have to get off and transfer to the segregated train cars in accordance with southern laws. You know, most train riders simply move to the other car because who needs the trouble? But as time goes on, you know, people's attitudes begin to change as, as the practice is revealed as arbitrary and insulting and ridiculous. And don't misunderstand, um, I don't mean to say, I certainly don't mean to say that black people in the South were happy with their arrangement, uh, but there is something different about it when it's part of a way of life that you were born into. When a world where things are any other way is, as far as you know, a rumor, a fairy tale. Something you hear about happening up North, but again, you know, for all you know, <laughs> it's people telling stories. Things begin to change when you live in that rumored place. You know, such as it is. When the train stops and you're ordered to the colored car, it rankles a little bit more than it used to. And when you're back visiting the South, those daily symbols of separation and condescension that had previously seemed built into the structure of things, almost faded to invisibility in the background of life, they suddenly stand out like gaudy signs tacked on overnight. You can't not see them anymore. You can't go back to the experience of the relatives that you've come south to visit who take for granted thing for th they take for granted things that you can no longer accept and you tell them that. And maybe some think you're just causing trouble, but maybe some don't. Back in Chicago or New York City or wherever it is that you were visiting from, when you're thirsty, you look for a drinking fountain. But now you're back visiting in Georgia or Alabama and and you're thirsty. You're thirsty and you see a fountain and you're just thoughtlessly walking toward it 
and only at the last second do you see that sign. Whites only. You'd almost allowed yourself to forget. You know, for all the conflict and discrimination in the North, that whites only sign still appears like something out of another world. You don't know whether to laugh at it or scream, but then the reality sets in and you realize what almost just happened. That if you had not seen that sign and had gone up and just taken a drink, that you might have been attacked by a mob. And then the police would have shown up, except they've come to arrest you. Because by taking that drink, you had broken the law. And so you look around at the other black people, your family and friends who still live in the South, just kind of looking around for the colored-only drinking fountain as if the whole arrangement was totally natural and not completely fucking insane. And your visit ends, and... You get back on the colored-only segregated train car and you head north, maybe just a little bit more radicalized than when you left. And maybe you drop some seeds of that radicalization among your family and friends in the South as well. And so this is how the process kind of gets going. You know, the radical view had had its place in the South, going back to the slave revolts of Turner and Vesey, I guess you could say. But it was in the northern and western cities that the drums of black radicalism really began to find their rhythm. First with little-known movements like the African Blood Brotherhood and, and Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association in the early 20th century. And rather than quoting the Constitution and Declaration of Independence and demanding their rights as Americans, these groups had another view. They, they were advocating racial separatism and black self-defense. They essentially saw themselves and their people in the South especially as living under occupation. Marcus Garvey's Universal African Legions were military uniforms and did military drills parading you know, through Harlem shouldering rifles in the 1920s. Now, they were fringe movements that suffered from erratic leadership, but, but they contained something that was going to grow decades later and eventually just start to shake the foundations of the whole country. In 1958, as Martin Luther King is writing his memoir of the Montgomery bus boycott, another black leader bubbled up to international attention. Robert F. Williams, uh, who I mentioned briefly in the last episode, he headed up the NAACP chapter of Monroe, North Carolina, which was a KKK stronghold. Although Williams was a Southerner originally, he'd cut his teeth in Detroit. Another one of these, like I kind of like I, I just told the story about, it, somebody who who goes north and, and and gets a little taste of something different, and then comes on back south. He cut his teeth in, De in Detroit, spending his early years working factories and becoming a labor organizer there. And he got accustomed to standing his ground against authority while he was doing that. And when he returned home to Monroe in 1955, that pivotal year after Brown versus the Board of Education, when 14-year-old Emmett Till was lynched in Mississippi and when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat in Montgomery, Williams got back to Monroe, North Carolina and went right to work organizing boycotts of segregated lunch counters and leading a fruitless effort to integrate the town pool and just generally uh, from the perspective of the white leadership of the town making a nuisance of himself. Uh, the writer Brian Burrow in his book Days of Rage writes, quote, After watching a Klansman force a black girl to dance at gunpoint, Williams formed the Black Armed Guard, arguing that armed self-reliance was necessary in the face of Klan terrorism. Its members were mostly NAACP men who started carrying guns. 
If the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution cannot be enforced in this social jungle called Dixie at this time, then Negroes must defend themselves, even if it is necessary to resort to violence, he told reporters. End quote. Um, the 1958 incident that briefly raised Williams to prominence, and I think I did mention this in the earlier episode, it occurred during the notorious uh, Monroe kissing case. Burrow writes about it, quote, Two black boys, aged seven and nine, had participated in a schoolyard kissing game in which a white Monroe girl gave one of the boys a peck on the cheek. The boys were arrested for molestation, jailed, beaten, and sent to a reform school. Williams led a defense effort, which eventually included Eleanor Roosevelt and, after a British newspaper expose, demonstrations in Paris, Rome, and Vienna. In Rotterdam, the U.S. Embassy was stoned, end quote. So the boys are soon released after the big uproar, and Williams becomes a, an important figure, especially among Harlem activists and others kind of in the edgier fringes of the movement. Uh, but the NAACP was not edgy, and it was not on the fringes, and soon Williams was attracting the wrong kind of attention from the organization for which he was working, and he spoke openly to newspapers about racial retribution. He told one newspaper reporter, we must be willing to kill if necessary. And so the NAACP suspended him for that. But Williams did not back down. Uh, when the Freedom Riders came to town to lead a black voter registration drive in 1961, a white couple got lost and was meandering their car through an agitated black crowd. And Williams was in the area, so he takes these two white people, this couple, and brings them into his home. And at first he refuses to let them leave, saying it would be unsafe. Local prosecutors took the opportunity to charge him with kidnapping. He fled, and the federal government piled on, charging him with unlawful interstate flight. With the help of friends in Harlem, he first escaped Canada and then made his way to Cuba, and he was welcomed with open arms by Fidel Castro. Burrow goes on, quote, In Cuba, Williams became a one-man factory of anti-Americanism. It was there that he wrote the book that became his legacy, Negroes with Guns, in which he argued that North Carolina authorities began protecting blacks only after they armed themselves. Between 1962 and 1965, Williams churned out a string of bellicose writings, many in a self-published newspaper, The Crusader. Castro even gave him a radio show broadcast into southern states called Radio Free Dixie. During the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, Williams called on black servicemen to engage in armed insurrection, end quote. Williams moved to China in 1965 and more or less dropped off the radar after that. And most today have never even heard of the man. And even in his day, he wasn't a household name, even among blacks, although he was well known on the emerging black radical scene and, and to the FBI. But Robert F. Williams had picked up a torch that had been, had been sort of carried underground in black America for a long time. And the man who took up the torch of black radicalism next would carry it out into the open. You know, greatness is a funny idea in history. Whether greatness is related to goodness, or whether the truly great work outside of boundaries that are, that are defined by and for common people in daily life. You know, maybe the truly great are only those whose stature causes them to become the embodiment of a set of values in a prevailing order. Those people that we call saints or culture heroes, or, or else to be one of those supreme heretics 
to stand so solidly in opposition to the prevailing order that your critics and enemies and the prevailing order that they defend find their own self-definition in their opposition to you. In this way, we might say that Marcion was, was, was the challenging heretic that, that became as important to the development of Christianity as the Apostle Paul. Malcolm Little was born in Omaha in 1925 one of eight children to a Baptist lay preacher, and, and his father was a committed member of Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association. The father's sense of black pride was passed on to the son, along with an abiding mistrust of white people after his family fled Klan harassment from Omaha to Lansing, Michigan, when Malcolm was three. Little of the father's Baptist teachings were received, however, and by middle school, Malcolm was an accomplished delinquent. In eighth grade, he moved to stay with a half-sister in Boston. By 17, he landed in Harlem, making his way as a drug dealer, pimp, and thief. Occasionally, bouncing back to Boston to rob the homes of rich white people, he was arrested there in 1946 and sent to state prison for eight to ten years. It was in prison that he discovered the Nation of Islam. It was in prison that he was radicalized. It was in prison that Malcolm Little just 21 years old when he was locked up, found a solid place to stand and became Malcolm X. When Malcolm was fresh out in 1952, the nation was still only a small band of a few hundred core followers of Elijah Muhammad, who'd inherited the movement from its founder, a Detroit clothing salesman named Wallace D. Fard. Malcolm would change the whole trajectory of the Nation of Islam. Today, the most prominent Nation of Islam leader is probably Louis X, now known as Louis Farrakhan, a figure who continues to embody the ambivalent energies that pulled at Malcolm, and whose relationship to the mainstream and to the rest of the movement has been just as complicated. Back during the 2008 U.S. presidential election, several major news organizations had a photo of a friendly Barack Obama and Louis Farrakhan posing together, but they suppressed it, because they worried that it would do damage to his election chances, which is another way of saying that they thought it would scare white voters. And yet Farrakhan and the nation in general have retained their positions of, of some importance in black culture and, and American culture more generally. And the nation of Islam sounds a bit crazy to outsiders. Fard, the founder, taught that blacks had ruled the world for trillions of years until 6,000 years ago or so, a rogue black wizard or scientist named Yakub created the white man, the white devil in nation mythology, through a process called grafting, breeding whites over centuries using regressive, uh, recessive black genes. And so Yakub used the white devil to destroy the black golden age. And one day, Fard prophesied, blacks would remember their history and initiate a racial Armageddon, destroying the white race and reestablishing black rule over the entire planet. Elijah Muhammad, Fard's protege and, and, and successor, announced that Fard had been an incarnation of God himself. Um, not exactly an orthodox Muslim view, to say the least. Uh, and that his coming had announced the, the, that the age of racial apocalypse had finally come. The, the day was at hand. Quoted in a black newspaper in 1959, Elijah Muhammad said, quote, The human beast, the serpent, the dragon, the devil, and Satan all mean one and the same. The people or race known as the white or Caucasian race, sometimes called the European race. Since they were created by liars and murderers, 
They are the enemies of truth and righteousness and the enemies of those who seek truth, end quote. Like the white supremacist Christian identity movement and the Aryan nation, the black supremacist nation of Islam reserved a special place in its demonology for Jews, a tendency in black radicalism that, that would eventually do serious damage to the movement uh, a little while later. And yet, what do you do with a movement that is, in many ways, uh, well, I'll say quite unorthodox and uh, encouraging racism and hatred, but that is taking convicts and criminals, thugs, lowlifes, pimps, and getting them off the streets and instilling them with a sense of dignity and purpose. Getting them off drugs and alcohol and, and, and out of crime. Malcolm once described black psychology in the days before movements like the nation and expressed a sentiment that, uh, well, I guess it was laid out by James Baldwin and many others very well over the years. Malcolm said, quote, we hated our head. We hated the shape of our nose. We wanted one of those long, dog-like noses. You know, yeah. We hated the color of our skin. We hated the look of Africa that was in our veins. And in hating our features and our skin and ourselves, our color became to us a chain. We felt that it was holding us back. Our color became to us like a prison which we felt was keeping us confined, and it became hateful to us. It made us feel inadequate, it made us feel helpless, end quote. So whereas the Southern Civil Rights Movement rallied black people to communicate collectively their demands to the white power structure, Malcolm was not interested in addressing himself to the white power structure. He was addressing himself to other blacks. He was not looking to dialogue with that power structure in order to change it. He wanted black people to stand together and fight it. In mosques and on street corners and Detroit, Chicago, Boston, Harlem, this six foot three charismatic guy, Malcolm X, fashioned himself into something of a revolutionary, mixing violent rhetoric with a message of black pride and empowerment. The black Muslims, they dressed sharply, they groomed themselves meticulously, they forbade the use of drugs or alcohol among their members, and so they cut an impressive figure as they strode confidently through these crumbling slums. Everything else around you is falling apart. And, and, and here are these guys who a lot of them that you knew were criminals and like they were not people who had their lives together. They clearly got it together now. And a typical mosque would be an Islamic flag, either hanging or drawn on a blackboard. And underneath it, the words were written, freedom, justice, and equality. And next to it would be an American flag. And underneath that would be the words Christianity, slavery, suffering, and death. Seating was segregated by gender in their mosques. And if there was any singing at all, a soloist might perform a nation song, such as A White Man's Heaven is a Black Man's Hell, which was written by Louis Farrakhan. Malcolm took over Harlem's 116th Street Mosque in 1954, and he came into his own at that exact moment when Harlem activists and intellectuals were embracing black nationalism and African pride movements. Post-colonial Africa was giving rise to newly independent states and leaders from whom black elites in Harlem drew a lot of inspiration. When Kwame Nkrumah, the, the radical U.S.-educated leader of Ghana, took an open-car tour of Harlem in 1958, his route was packed with cheering crowd, thousands of people. Peniel Joseph, the writer in, in his book, Waiting to the Midnight Hour, it's a history of black militancy in America, 
Uh, he wrote that Malcolm, Robert F. Williams, and the Cuban Revolution by the late 1950s had, quote, helped create a new generation of black nationalists who studied local organizing, the politics of armed self-defense, and global upheavals with, local, with equal fervor, end quote. But that it was the 1961 assassination of Congo leader Patrice Lumumba by a Belgian firing squad that really radicalized them. In February 1961, crowds of outraged black nationalists protested for days at the United Nations in New York. Once they even stormed the grounds and fought with the guards. Who died for the black man? One protester was shouting. Lumumba! Who died for freedom? Lumumba! And one group insisted to a reporter that from now on, blacks in America were no longer to be called Negroes, but Afro-Americans. Brian Burrow writes, quote, This was something altogether new in America. The image of furious northern blacks standing in sharp contrast to their stoic southern brethren marching behind Martin Luther King Jr. Malcolm rode this wave of discontent to national prominence, earning profiles in Life magazine and the New York Times in which he unleashed verbal thunderbolts like a vengeful Zeus. He attacked moderate black leaders as race traitors, excoriating King as a chump, not a champ, and the baseball great Jackie Robinson as an Uncle Tom. As violence spread in the South, Malcolm's rhetoric grew steadily more violent, climaxing in perhaps his best-known speech delivered in Detroit in November 1963. It was there, drawing the distinction between moderates and militants, that he famously conjured the image of two types of slaves, docile house Negroes who cared for their sick white masters and hardened field Negroes who wished them dead. In doing so, he foresaw the only logical conclusion to any campaign for black equality in America, a revolution, a violent revolution. Malcolm's bloody vision galvanized a generation of black militants and set the stage for the riots that would erupt in America's black ghettos for the rest of the decade. Responding directly to King in the months after King's famous I Have a Dream speech, Malcolm proclaimed, You don't have a peaceful revolution. You don't have a turn-the-other-cheek revolution. Revolution is bloody. Revolution is hostile. Revolution knows no compromise. Revolution overturns and destroys everything that gets in its way. And you, sitting around here like a knot on the wall, saying, I'm going to love these folks no matter how much they hate me. No, you need a revolution. Whoever heard of a revolution where they lock arms and sing, we shall overcome? You don't do that in a revolution. You don't do any singing. You're too busy swinging. End quote. Now, although Malcolm's notoriety had risen to make his name known around the country, the focus of white America uh, had remained on the Southern movement. For it was the South that gave readers of newspapers and viewers of televisions this easily digestible white hat, black hat, good, bad, David versus Goliath story to follow. You know, Martin Luther King marching in a suit despite the sweltering Southern heat and preaching nonviolence in the face of this monolithic enemy, Jim Crow, and in so doing, giving Northern whites a way to separate themselves from the country's racial past to identify themselves in opposition to it, to play a role in that story other than the bad guy. Malcolm was not giving him that option. Beginning with the Greensboro sit-ins in 1960, uh, which I described in the previous episode, white students began to mobilize to put themselves on the line with black activists. Out of this was formed SNCC, 
which I, which I mentioned earlier, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. This is a black-led organization, for the most part, of young black and white activists that set itself to the very, very difficult tasks of practical politics, you know, confronting power at its street-level points of contact. In the early 1960s, the vast majority of the white membership of SNCC was Jewish. You know, these were, were kids who, who were born in the 40s and who took in their parents' their Jewish parents' radical left-wing politics and their, their tales of resistance and suffering. They, they took that in with their mother's milk. And so they showed up to college, I mean, ready to, ready to get it on. Paul Berman, uh, author and he, he, a veteran of the left-wing student movements of the 1960s, in his book, A Tale of Two Utopias, writes, quote, In large parts of the world, the 20th century from the 30s to the early 50s had been an age of disaster, and the parents of the students of the 60s, the left-wing parents especially, were disasters veterans. Those people had been the combatants in the Spanish Civil War, the communist youth club in Mexico that produced Gilberto Guevara and some, few, some other future leaders of the student uprisings in 1968 contained the children of refugees from Spain. Their parents had struggled through the Depression and the Second World War, and they had endured the repression of communist movements in a m number of Western countries when the war was over, and now the parents were exhausted, and the children who were born of those parents had something in common. They were the after-the-deluge children. Children with backgrounds like those were brought up in the post-war years in the kind of atmosphere that used to be called militant. Depending on the point of origin, that meant the youth groups of the Communist Party, for others, the Zionist Socialist Youth Movement, Hashemar Hatzair, the Young Guard, and in a small handful of cases, the anarchist groups. The children sang the songs and attended the festivals. They listened to the stories of what their parents had done during the war. They knew themselves to be the children of heroes and people who had suffered. Their own childish lives, on the other hand, were singularly free of heroism or suffering, at least after their earliest years. They grew up during the greatest prolonged boom in the history of capitalism. Everything that the parents had lacked, the children came to possess. Comfort, peace, security, democracy, education, opportunity. And as the children got older, the contrast between Marxist memories of the war and the comforts of the present was bound to cast a disagreeable light on their own young lives. For who were they, these children, compared to who their parents had been? For that matter, who were these parents by the 1960s? The old guerrilla heroes of the wartime resistance who kept prattling to their children about Marxism and courage and the coming revolution and feats of the past? These people had become, thanks to their own successes and the capitalist boom, middle-aged bourgeois who no longer meant a single word about revolutionary Marxism, but did think that the children ought to be grateful to have things so easy. Not every young person growing up in circumstances like those would feel especially tortured by moral self-doubt or self-contempt. But there is a certain kind of young person for whom moral tortures are unavoidable, and the natural place for people like that is in a left-wing group. Some people suffer from an inferiority complex. These people suffered from an illegitimacy complex. The complex made them wonder if their own privileges weren't based on a lie. Their parents and the elders whom they met in the Communist Party or in some other left-wing organizations kept saying that life had become better and progress was at hand. In the future, social conditions would continue to improve. The young people knew that, in regard to their own student lives, that these statements were true. On the other hand, France in the 1960s was fighting an ugly colonial war against the Algerian nationalists, was it not? 
Soon enough, the United States was fighting an exceedingly nasty anti-communist war against the Vietnamese. Was life any better for the Algerians or the Vietnamese under the bombs of the Western Allies? Was the exploitation of Arab and African immigrant workers in France or of the black proletariat in the United States any different from the racist exploitation that had thrived in earlier times? Things were better, but only for oneself. So the young people embarked on a reverse passion for the other. Not a hatred for people who were different, but a love for them, an eager acknowledgement of their very difference. Far away solidarity became their religion. End quote. The other became fetishized in many ways for the young white left wing activists suffering from a complex that made them feel both illegitimate and inauthentic. And these young people, like all young people, only more so, uh, were looking for action. Their parents had become soft and complacent, you know, revolutionary when it had been their own skins on the lines, but content now to tell the victims of Western imperialism and racism to wait for the ponderous gears of reform to turn. And the parents, of course, saw things very differently. Um, they knew from experience how rapidly and completely everything could fall apart and what falling apart could really mean. You know, they had escaped into middle age, some by the skin of their teeth. They had made it into the middle class of a stable, for them, relatively tolerant country. They had fought hard to see their children to the point where, where they were now entering college. You know, they saw the younger people prattling on about the need for confrontation and direct action as the naive belligerent of a generation that was unable to appreciate its inheritance. And the, the, this energy of the young was redirected differently in different countries. In France, you had young left-wing activists leaving to fight in the South American wars or running messages for the Algerian nationalist insurgents. In the United States, though, uh, the official Communist Party had been, uh, to the extent that it had ever been popular, had been completely neutered by McCarthyism. And because after the 1956 Soviet invasion of Hungary, most of the American left had shed its remaining illusions about Stalinism in the USSR. The prolonged success of the post-war economy, especially in the United States, left many on the American left looking for a new proletariat to lead, since the working class that they had inherited had been placated, pacified, at least momentarily, by this rapid increase in their prospects and standard of living. And they found that new proletariat when they turned on their TVs in 1960 and saw black demonstrators facing down enraged southern police with marchers playing the Jews and sheriffs playing the Nazis. You know, just like in the stories their parents told. It was perfect. Even the police dogs were German shepherds. And the whole thing hung together so well because of the nonviolent approach of the mainstream civil rights movement. That's why it all worked. You know, the police weren't putting down riots. They were going upside the heads of people who were engaged in marches and sit-ins. The nonviolent approach, it, it was, there, there was, it, 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 for Martin Luther King, it was a moral thing, but it was also a strategic thing. I mean, it laid bare the nature of the system. It wasn't some natural arrangement if it had to be enforced by brutality against people who were not engaging in violence themselves. The violence that underwrote the entire Jim Crow way of life was being exposed by the nonviolent approach. When white freedom riders, about 70% of them Jewish, rode with 
CORE, the Congress on Racial Equality and SNCC and, and other activists to defy segregation in the seething guts of the Old South in 1961, they were beaten by mobs right along with the black riders. Segregation of interstate bus rides had been deemed illegal by federal courts, but it continued to be enforced by state and local authorities. And so beginning in the late spring of 1961, groups of mostly young people, um, white and black, often against the uh, advice of some of the older leaders of the civil rights movement who thought that they were just courting trouble for themselves, uh, they began boarding buses together and they headed straight for the heart of the Deep South. In Anniston, Alabama, Klan members firebombed a bus full of Freedom Riders and held the door shut to prevent their escape until finally a patrolman fired a shot into the air to force their retreat. When the riders offboarded, the mob set upon and just beat the tar out of them. Most taken to the hospital were refused care, and in the middle of the night, they had to be taken away because hospital staff feared that the mob outside was going to come in and attack them. But more riders came, passing through Anniston on their way to Birmingham where they had to face city commissioner Bull Connor. This is a vicious man who, who took his bigotry very seriously. Uh, as the riders exited the bus in Birmingham, they were attacked and beaten with bats, pipes, chains, by a mob that knew ahead of time, that was told ahead of time, that it would be given free reign for at least 15 minutes by Connor's police force. And the white riders were actually singled out for special abuse by the mob. You know, this is a this is a period. This is 1961. You know, when 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 the bus boycotts had had in Montgomery had achieved their purpose, and things were spreading, and and the national media was really starting to pay attention, and the South was gearing up for a for a final you know war of defense of the Jim Crow system and segregation. They were not going to go quietly. After Birmingham, the Greyhound bus drivers. They refused to continue their route to Montgomery. They were, they were going to pass on from Birmingham to Montgomery. And the, the bus drivers, they said, I'm not doing this. I don't get paid enough for this shit. And so uh, especially there were reports of a mob already assembled in Montgomery waiting for them. With no other way to reach the planned rally in New Orleans, some of the riders decided to fly to Louisiana direct from Birmingham. Just skip it. Did what we came to do, I guess. Uh, but they were delayed in their departure on the plane after a bomb threat was made against it. It was at this moment when the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, this one-year-old organization formed out of the Greensboro sit-ins, a bunch of students, stepped up. A SNCC leader in Nashville, Diane Nash, she put out a local call, and 10 students joined her in taking a bus to Birmingham, where they were arrested. Connor had them arrested and jailed. And when they were in jail, they defied the police by singing civil rights songs loudly in their cells until... Bull Connor got so agitated by it that he had him driven back to the Tennessee state line and dropped off on the other side. The students promptly found another bus and just headed right back to Birmingham. And very quickly, SNCC's call went national. And within a few days, new writers from all over the eastern U.S. joined those who had already remained in Birmingham, which included current U.S. Congressman John Lewis. They attempted to get back on the road from Birmingham to Montgomery, but the bus drivers were so cowed by the mob surrounding the bus depot that they refused to take them. The riders waited all night in the bus station under siege by a screaming mob outside. The mobs and the southern authorities abetting them cheered every time they forced a driver or a group of riders to retreat, but with every assault, you know what they didn't know, they were just digging another shovel full of dirt in the grave of Jim Crow. Images of the violence were going out and shocking the nation. 
You know, the images went around the world and drew diplomatic rebuke upon the Kennedy administration. It was only months into office at the time and focused on Cuba and world communism and, and, and did not want to have to deal with racial unrest in the summer of 1961. And, and the administration at first had urged patience and restraint on the riders, not exactly taking the side of, of, of the forces of segregation, but they just didn't want the problem. But now the administration was coming under extreme pressure and they had to change course. The federal government ordered Greyhound to provide a driver for the riders in Birmingham. The road to Montgomery was reported to be beset with mobs and even snipers, so the Kennedy administration extracted a promise from the Alabama governor to provide safe passage. The bus barreled down the highway at 90 miles per hour, escorted by Alabama patrol cars, which abandoned the bus as soon as they got to the city limits of Montgomery, and the mob was waiting. They attacked the riders again with bats and chains and other weapons. Again, white riders were singled out for special abuse. Reporters were attacked, their camera equipment was destroyed, ambulances refused service to the injured, and beaten riders had to be rescued by local black residents. An official of the U.S. Justice Department who was present as an observer, uh, this Justice Department official was left bleeding and unconscious in the street. So the next night, there was some 1,500 people packed into Ralph Abernathy's Baptist Church in Montgomery there in support of the Freedom Riders. And speakers included Fred Shuttlesworth, who had organized the hospital rescue of the riders in Anniston, and Martin Luther King Jr. A crowd of some 3,000 white residents had assembled and attacked the congregants surrounding the church. The mob broke windows and set off tear gas canisters. City and state police just watched it all happen, and a few U.S. marshals, uh, federal marshals, did their best to defend the church building from being burned down. And Dr. King, who by this point was a revered figure in the movement, he learned that black taxi drivers were arming themselves to come mount a rescue operation to get him out. He was worried about what happened, what would happen if they tried, and so he chose 10 volunteers inside the church who pledged to nonviolence to escort him through the mob to where the drivers were to ask them to stand down and and disperse, disarm and, and disperse. He got out there, uh, he made his way to them, and they agreed. And so he didn't stay out of the church, he went back into the church. Under threat from President Kennedy to call in the regular army, the governor finally called up the Alabama National Guard to restore order. They finally arrived and dispersed the mob sometime in the early morning. At each stop along the way, the Freedom Riders were leaving bodies behind in jails, hospitals, and safe houses, but however many they left behind, more and more just came to replace them. Just wanting the ordeal to end without more publicity and violence, the Kennedy administration cut a really craven deal with the governors of Alabama and Mississippi. If the states would protect the riders from mobs, the federal government would not intervene to prevent local authorities from arresting the freedom riders for violating local segregation laws. Three days after the incident at Abernathy's church, two more buses set out for Jackson, Mississippi. Upon arrival, all the riders were arrested. A third bus arrived, and all these riders were arrested. And then a fourth and a fifth, and they were all arrested. All arrested were refused bail. The atmosphere in the jails was festive, and singing filled the cells and corridors. 
word spread and, and a new strategy came on and riders converged on Jackson to be arrested. And when the jails filled, riders were sent to the notorious Mississippi State Penitentiary. And despite abusive treatment in the state prison, riders kept singing and they were punished for it and they continued to sing and they were punished until the prison was filled with over 300 young, mostly student freedom riders, black and white, singing songs of liberation. And this is only May. In June, July, and August, over 60 more freedom rides would roll through the South, expanding their civil disobedience to challenge segregation in local businesses and organizing voter registration drives. During this period, about half of the freedom riders touring the South were white, and together these young people achieved a major victory against Jim Crow, salvaging through courage and will what could have been a terrible defeat if they had backed down after the early setbacks. It would have sent a very strong negative message. After the Greensboro sit-ins of 1960 and the Freedom Rides in 1961, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, had, had established itself as the most prominent and effective student activist group in the South. An example to groups like SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society, which would become the most important student activist group based out of the Northern Universities. SDS a virtually all-white and, and mostly Jewish organization, uh, did not spring up out of nowhere in response to the civil rights movement like SNCC did, but was rooted in a leftist tradition going back to the labor wars of the late 19th and early 20th century. You know, this gave the group intellectual weight and venerability, but it also meant that it had to contend with old rivalries and ideological squabbles that SNCC didn't have to contend with. And, and it had to deal with the inertia of tradition as it tried to swing around from traditional Marxism to anti-war and racial politics. In 1905, Upton Sinclair, the author of The Jungle, put together a campus wing of the Socialist Party of America, which at the time was a pretty vigorous concern led by a very dynamic guy named Eugene Debs. Um, I think I'll probably eventually have an episode that'll involve him pretty heavily. Uh, not as part of this series, but to be announced later. Um, the author, Jack London, uh, Call of the Wild, White Fang, all that, became the president of the student group, and soon chapters were established at 70 universities all around the United States. The campus group eventually birthed an adult organization called the League for Industrial Democracy, the LID, described by Paul Mer Berman as something like a think tank for the Socialist Party. About LID, Berman writes, quote, the group never did draw any attention to itself, but in its modest way, it occupied the exact spot in American life where European-style social reform or social democracy, American-style liberalism, and the trade unions came together. The lid was socialism without the crippling sectarianism of the Socialist Party, liberalism without the middle-class snobbishness that looks down on labor, unionism without the me-firstism of the conservative unions, end quote. The lid reorganized the student group that had birthed it into the Student League for Industrial Democracy, or SLID, and unfortunately named, but very effective recruiter and trainer of a generation of young labor leaders. And finally, by 1960, the Student League for Industrial Democracy was renamed Students for a Democratic Society, or SDS. So a venerable history, um, but not one that would have led observers in 1960 to predict that by the end of that decade, its members would be engaging in pitch battles with police and setting off bombs in the U.S. Capitol building and the Pentagon and killing people as 
the group's long history came to a crashing and bloody end, which is where this is headed. In the early 60s, the group's leaders are still engaged in a struggle with the stodgy leaders of the adult organizations over questions of doctrine and direction and tactics. These are the adults I spoke of a few minutes ago, veterans of the labor wars and wars far worse, who, by this point, the students felt had become a little lazy, a little self-satisfied and myopic, and that they were missing the boat on a human rights crisis as serious as any in the world right here in their own country. The students saw the marches. They saw the sit-ins and the bus rides on television. They saw history being made by student groups like SNCC working with far less resources than LID and SDS could bring to bear if they were focused. And they wanted to be a part of that. You know, history was being made, and they, they felt they were being left behind. When the dust settled and history had rendered its verdicts, they didn't want to have to admit that they'd sat the struggle out because they were busy arguing esoteric points about Marxism or organizing letter-writing campaigns in support of the teachers' union. You know, they shared the worry of a French activist of the time that after the veterans of Verdun, of Mauthausen, and of Indochina, we will be the veterans of the cinema. These kids wanted some action. And they began to toss around the idea of a new left. As, as Michael Foyer, the author and founding editor of, of Zone Books, wrote, by, quote, substituting a theoretical coalition of young people, women, and marginalized ethnic minorities for a working class that was completely spent and converted to the promises of a welfare state, end quote. This necessarily meant a generational conflict with their left-wing elders, but it was a conflict whose time had come. The student population had exploded around the world since the 1950s, and the kids were, were feeling the power that came with numbers. Between 55 and 1970, the number of students at university in the United States would triple. And beyond just the numbers, the increased student population meant increased student diversity of all kinds, you know, of, of the type of people to be found in colleges. For the first time, a significant black student population was emerging. There was more representation of lower, middle, and working class students, and greater diversity in the level of intelligence and ability of the students. You know, in other words, in instead of being a relatively homogenous group of upper middle class white scions coming to university to follow in family footsteps, students were becoming a society unto themselves, socializing one another to each other's issues of concerns and beginning to feel themselves as a generation as a people apart from their professors and parents. I'll quote again from Paul Berman's book at length here, if you'll indulge me. Um, he's one of my two or three primary sources for this point in the history of SDS and the New Left, and, and my own version would inevitably just border on plagiarism anyway. So, uh, quote, This is the story of how the split between the generations, taken as a political disagreement, got its start as a fairly obscure argument deep within the ranks of the old working-class parties of the left. No more than a handful of people were ever involved. The brightest young people in the old left-wing parties or in their youth affiliates somehow got into a dispute with the adult leaders of their own organization. The arguments grew testy. Finally, the irritated adults grabbed a few of the uncooperative young people by the hair and grandly expelled them from the organized ranks of the American left. No one would have predicted a great future for the students for a democratic society in 1960. 
The Socialist Party still maintained a proprietary relation over the LID and its student group, but the party by then, having long ago entered into irremediable decline, was more of a club or a philosophical society than a political organization in any ordinary sense. The International Ladies Garment Workers Union and a few other labor groups still clung to a socialist identity and faithfully paid the bills for the party's LID. But the unions themselves were no longer young and frisky, and their left-wing glamour was something no one could remember. The Socialist Party leader, Norman Thomas, enjoyed the kind of reputation among liberals that allowed people to speak kindly of him and blithely ignore his more radical ideas. By 1960, the LID itself had degenerated into an old-timers and pensioners organization. The LID's student for, Students for a Democratic Society was almost invisible. Instead of 70 chapters, there were, by 1960, only three. Still, one of those three the SDS chapter at the University of Michigan was noticeably talented. The first person to conceive of something like a new left student movement in America is said to have been Al Haber of the Michigan chapter. Haber was the son of an old admirer of Norman Thomas and the Socialists, which meant that SDS's family roots in the American left were reasonably solid at Michigan. And the Michigan chapter could claim Tom Hayden, whose abilities were great. He read Kerouac, Camus, and C. Wright Mills. He quoted Ignacio Salone. He had a knack for integrating bits of Catholic humanism into his left-wing thinking. When beginning in 1960, SNCC, the student affiliate of the Southern Civil Rights Movement, organized the Freedom Rides and any number of other activities to overthrow Jim Crow, Hayden, with funds that came to SDS through LID and its labor supporters, went from Ann Arbor into the South to support their activities. He worked on voter registration campaigns. He helped integrate the Georgia Railroad. His 22nd birthday was spent in a jail cell in Albany, Georgia. He was beaten in Mississippi. He was brave. And if Hayden did anything that was, in addition, novel, it was mostly in the way that he began to write about these activities. He composed reports from the Deep South, which he worked on with Haber and some of the other Michigan SDSers and sent around for his fellow students to read. The reports exuded an air of personal daring and moral simplicity, he talked about young people proving themselves by undertaking risky shoot-for-the-moon affairs, a slightly existentialist phrase, based not on personal security desires, but on a willingness to deal with the uncertain. They imagined that, through radical action, they were going to revive the heroism and moral clarity of the old resistance battles for the revolution of the revolutionary era. But again and again, as soon as they tried to recapture those times in any practical way, they ran into a terrible obstacle. It was the adult left. The grizzled leaders of the left turned out to be people who felt not a single moral qualm about their own adult lives. On the topic of desperado actions by young leftists, the adults regarded themselves as supreme experts. And their expertise told them that during the glory days of the economic boom, risk-taking adventures were a thing of the past. The young people wanted action. The adults flared their nostrils, smelled petty bourgeois adventurism, and gave the order. No. And so the young people looked at their elders and felt contempt. They felt for their elders all the contempt that otherwise they might have felt for themselves as the do-nothing heirs of heroes and martyrs. Middle-class comforts made Hayden and the SDSers fidgety. They worried about the corruptions of privilege. They were victims of an illegitimacy complex. And of all the youth organizations that came out of the classic American left in the 50s and six, early 60s, Hayden's was the group that found itself embroiled in American versions of the worldwide internecine quarrel between the left-wing generations. In 1962, 
Hayden and Haber went to consult with their adult sponsors at the Lid in New York. They quarreled. Hayden considered that the Lid was venerable, but, in his words, senile. The next year, an SDS group that included Hayden, Todd Gitlin, and Steve Max visited Irving Howe and the editors of Dissent magazine for a philosophical discussion. Dissent was the socialist movement's principal intellectual journal in the United States. Howe was the movement's shrewdest, most eloquent writer. The discussion touched on the Cuban Revolution and the nonviolent tactics of Mahatma Gandhi. Young Hayden and middle-aged Howe ended up sneering at each other. And of all the left-wing groups in America, the tiny social democratic student organization that was incapable of chatting amiably with its elders was precisely the group that now found itself attracting the largest number of new members in the colleges and universities of the Midwest and East, and sometimes in other regions too. The people who founded the long organizational family tree that led to SDS tended to think about democracy along radical and utopian lines. Yet of all its concepts and phrases, participatory democracy was, I think, the only one to survive a generation later, at least without causing major embarrassment. It was a good idea, mostly, and an American one, of democracy as not merely an arrangement, but an activity, something one does, not only when casting a vote, but sometimes stones as well. And beyond its several virtues, in its quiet way, participatory democracy articulated the existential drama of moral activism. For who was going to be the Jeffersonian participant in the SDS ideal, the Whitmanesque singer of the Song of Occupations, the Deweyan achiever of self-realization? It was going to be you, the member of SDS, the runner of risks. And if anyone in the early and middle 60s still wondered what risks or activities those might be, Hayden was there to spell it out with his own example and his feats of integrationist activism and the beatings and jailings that he underwent for the cause of civil rights. Moral activism is finally what drew people to SDS. Activism showed the wider population of privileged American students that their own cozy life did not have to be a prison, and nothing could prevent them from going out into the world and fighting for a juster society, and the choice to be a democratic participant was theirs to make. Suspicion of leaders became so intense that after a while, Hayden and other people who were in, who were in fact leaders began to pretend that they weren't and took to sitting among the rank and file instead of at the head of the room. In that way, the leaders became unaccountable, and a bit of demagogy was introduced into the anti-demagogic cause. The obsession with formlessness and consensus had the further debilitating effect of erasing any institutional memory, which is always the weak spot in student movements. Activists came along, learned some lessons, graduated from campus life, and every lesson learned was gone. One of the socialist elders who came to proffer advice on behalf of the LID was Michael Harrington, author of The Other America, which came out in 1962, a good year for American social criticism. Harrington was 34, not so elder after all, but with an intuitive political memory that seemed to bespeak 300 years of left-wing wisdom. After staying up all night arguing with the students, he threw a tantrum, in his own description, and left while the conference was still in session. He returned to New York full of irritation at the unreliable students and reported back to the anxious New York adults of the LID about the young SDSers in the Middle West, and his report was not flattering. That was the occasion in which Hayden and Al Haber presented themselves to the New York office for the first of those famously disastrous meetings between the young and old. The room was full of ideologues from the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union and the Jewish Labor Committee and other poobahs of New York socialism. 
the two young men found themselves roundly denounced, by Harrington himself no less, for united frontism. That meant consorting with communists, a terrible crime among the trade union-focused American socialists. And the lids swung into action. The SDS leaders discovered that the lock on their national New York office had been changed. And yet, and yet, in only a few years, the adults would gaze out the window to see those same uncooperative young troublemakers marching through the streets with fists in the air, flags red and black, and several hundred thousand followers marching behind. I want to return to that idea of greatness in history. It seems like you can't have a history-related podcast without mentioning the great man versus trends and forces interpretations of history every third episode or so, or, or without concluding that, well, of course, it's a little bit of both, which is either a nuance or a cop-out, depending on how generous you want to be to the host. But what do we mean when we say it's a little bit of both? As I've been going through this episode, it's uh, getting it ready, thinking about people like Malcolm or or Martin Luther King, it's something that uh, has come into my mind in various ways again and again, you know. Um, do we mean that, is it, is it typically impersonal trends and forces that drive history, but occasionally a great personality comes along that sweeps everything aside and bends the arc to his strong will? Or is it some combination of the two present all the time? Um, I guess what I mean when I say it, is that trends and forces present opportunities for great people to rise to the occasion. Often, great people are riding the tiger on an unsustainable path destined to break them, and sometimes they even know it. But in the moment when the opportunity is there, some people step up. And you think of what was going on in 1963, for example, as pressure was building in the South to a point where the entire nation's attention is becoming fixed on the civil rights struggle. After the sit-ins of 1960 were met with violence, but then success. And then after the freedom rides in 1961 were also met with violence, but then success. In 1962, the year of the first midterm election of the Kennedy administration, and you know, other unrelated things, Cuban Missile Crisis, I guess it's tangential in certain ways, but You've got SNCC and other groups deciding to put some faith in the American electoral system, and they organize voter registration drives across the South for that 62 uh, midterm. These attempts are met with violence and corruption. Civil rights activists are being jailed, and white mobs are intimidating black voters, and very little progress is made that year. An article describing a document circulated within the movement billed as the Second Emancipation Proclamation began Quote, by 1962, the freedom movement fight against segregation is slowly grinding to a halt. Two years of sit-ins have managed to desegregate some public facilities in some college towns of the mid and upper south, and after the freedom rides, all bus terminals serving interstate commerce are now no longer segregated, in theory. But across the region, most public facilities remain segregated by local law, and the very few Afro-Americans who dare sit at the front of a bus still face both vigilante violence and likely arrest on trumped-up charges of disorderly conduct or disturbing the peace. And by 1962, most student integration campaigns in the Deep South have been crushed by intensified police repression and Klan terrorism. In Albany, Georgia, for example, public facilities are still segregated despite a powerful SNCC-organized movement 
with deep support in the Afro-American community and mass marches led by Dr. King resulting in over 750 arrests, end quote. And so 1963 begins inauspiciously with the governor of Alabama, George Wallace, standing on the steps of the state capitol and defiantly announcing, you know, kind of indicating the level of confidence they're starting to feel, the, the, the pro-segregation forces, standing on the state capitol steps and announcing segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. After the Cuban Missile Crisis in November of the previous year, the Kennedy administration's attention was understandably focused on foreign affairs. And the states and municipalities in the South are taking advantage of its distraction. At protests in the spring, authorities in Birmingham were emboldened by the federal government's inattention and, and, and were turning police dogs and fire hoses on demonstrators and onlookers, including children in many cases. By 1963, the movement had exploded from a few students engaging in civil disobedience to a nationwide mass movement, and the pressure for change was reaching a critical mass. The militant black radicals, following the lead of players like Malcolm X, were gaining ground as the Southern movement behind Martin Luther King Jr. seemed to have no really good answers to the continued brutality of the South. Black consciousness was going global, and many black Americans were beginning to join the Harlem intellectuals in seeing their struggle in global terms. Within a few years, Togo, Mali, Senegal, Zaire... Somalia, uh, Benin, Niger, Burkina Faso, Ivory Coast, Chad, Central African Republic, Congo, Gabon, Nigeria, Mauritania, Sierra Leone. I got the whole list here. You know, Jamaica, they would all become independent nations within the course of a couple of years. And they looked to black American intellectuals very often for inspiration. And black Americans looked back to those nations for the same. Dr. King wrote, quote, the new sense of dignity and self-respect of the Negro was due in part to the rising awareness that his struggle is part of a worldwide struggle, end quote. The U.S. media was fixated. The New York Times published more stories on the movement in two weeks in May of 1963 than it had in the previous two years combined. Televisions beamed out images of children being bitten by dogs and knocked across the street by fire hoses with enough power to rip the bark off a tree. Early in 1963, only a small minority, less than 10% of Americans thought civil rights was the country's most pressing issue, which is, again, understandable in the months after the Cuban Missile Crisis, but by the summer of that same year, that number was 52%. In just two and a half months during the first half of the year, there were over 750 demonstrations in almost 200 cities and almost 15,000 arrests. In June... The day after Kennedy gave a national address on the need to work toward a solution to the civil rights crisis, Mississippi activist Medgar Evers was gunned down in his driveway and died at the hospital after initially being refused treatment because he was black. And Medgar Evers was a World War II veteran who had helped integrate the University of Mississippi. His killer was arrested and let off and lived as a free man until he was finally convicted in 1994. And at this critical moment, during the long, hot summer when demonstrations might have turned into riots or frustration might have resulted in terrorism, when, when resistance from the Southern authorities was at a high and interest from Washington at a low, it was determined to hold a march on Washington, D.C. to demand change from the federal government, to give the system an opportunity to show that it could address the grievances of black Americans. 
Very few people had any faith that it would accomplish anything. A Gallup poll showed that less than a quarter of those polled believed it would. President Kennedy, who by now was trying to put civil rights legislation through Congress, asked the organizers not to hold the march. He was worried that it would only stiffen the resistance, especially if it resulted in any violence, which would be presumably hard to control. Leaders of SNCC thought that the march by itself would just be a pointless show. They wanted to take direct action against the Department of Justice, and they withdrew their endorsement when they were informed by the organizers that at this event, civil disobedience wouldn't be allowed. Malcolm X denounced the march as the farce on Washington. But the march for jobs and freedom, as it came to be called, was to go forward, and a lineup of the great leaders of the Southern Civil Rights Movement agreed to speak. Hundreds of thousands of people made their way to Washington, D.C. in August 1963. Networks carried the event to tens of millions of homes across the United States. And the stage was set. The event opened with the announcement that the great black intellectual and activist W.E.B. Du Bois, longtime leader of the NAACP, had died the previous night in Ghana. Leaders of the various organizations that participated gave their speeches, some of them inspired, some of them very confrontational. John Lewis, the youngest to speak, represented SNCC, and he gave a fiery speech denouncing the Kennedy administration, a line which many of the other organizations discouraged. Other speakers included Roy Wilkins, A. Philip Randolph, Bayard Rustin. These are the big names of the civil rights movement. And then also the labor leader, Walter Reuther. And finally, Martin Luther King Jr. We see him today as something of an icon, but it's important to remember that this was just a man who hadn't even reached his 35th birthday yet. And everything is building to this moment. The pressure on him was unbelievable with the eyes of the nation and the world on the U.S. Capitol, and his critics within the movement who saw his nonviolent approach as ineffective and weak and collaborationist even. And what does this 34-year-old Southern preacher do but get in front of the microphone, in front of the Washington Monument, and deliver arguably the greatest speech in American history? We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. As long as our bodies, heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities, We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote, and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we 
are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not my unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities. Knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friend, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today.
I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrims cry. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the crevaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. The image of that man giving that speech at that specific moment in history in front of literally hundreds of thousands of people in the nation's capital. I mean, it'll, it'll always be remembered as one of the great events in American history, as long as this nation lives. And there were literally centuries of bottlenecking historical forces converging on D.C. that day. But it was up to the people there to take that energy into themselves and transform it into something great. And Martin Luther King Jr. was just equal to the moment that day. And victories followed. After the failure of Mississippi voter registration drives in 1962, activists converged on the state to register black voters during the 1964 Freedom Summer. That July, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was enacted, officially banning discrimination nationwide based on race, sex, religion, or national origin. But behind the headline victories, racial violence showed no sign of abating. 
Days after King's triumphant speech in Washington, a bomb in Birmingham killed four little black girls. Many, especially in the North, where racial discrimination was already officially outlawed, had been for a long time, they had very little faith that the national legislation was going to have any meaningful effect. During the Freedom Summer of 64, over 1,000 activists were arrested. Dozens were beaten. More than 30 black churches and another 30 black homes and businesses were bombed or burned. Four civil rights workers were killed. And three black residents were murdered for their support for the movement. This was over the course of just 10 weeks. And all for what? What were they really trying to accomplish down in Mississippi with this Freedom Summer? To lift the legal oppression from southern blacks only to place them under the more insidious economic and police repression they faced in the north? It's the question that a lot of people were asking. Months after Dr. King delivered his speech, Malcolm X delivered the counterpoint in one of his most famous speeches. This afternoon, we want to talk about the ballot or the bullet. The ballot or the bullet explains itself. So today, though Islam is my religious philosophy, my political, economic, and social philosophy is black nationalism. You and I... As I say, if we bring up religion, we'll have differences, we'll have arguments, we'll never be able to get together. But if we keep our religion at home, keep our religion in the closet, keep our religion between ourselves and our God, but when we come out here, we have a fight that's common to all of us against the enemy who is common to all of us. Whether you are whether you are a Christian or a Muslim or a nationalist, we all have the same problem. They don't hang you because you're a Baptist. They hang, hang you because you're black. They don't attack me because I'm a Muslim. They attack me because I'm black. They attack all of us for the same reason. All of us catch hell from the same enemy. We're all in the same bag in the same boat. We suffer political oppression, economic exploitation, and social degradation, all of them from the same enemy. The government has failed us. You can't deny that. Anytime you live in the 20th century and you're walking around here singing, we shall overcome, the government has failed us. This is part of what's wrong with you. You do too much singing. Today, it's time to stop singing and start swinging. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, in case you don't know it, that you got a new, you got a new generation of black people in this country who don't care anything whatsoever about odds. They don't want to hear you old Uncle Tom handkerchief heads talking about uh, the odds. No. This is a new generation. If they're going to draft these young black men and send them over to Korea or South Vietnam to face 800 million Chinese, 
If you're not afraid of those odds, you shouldn't be afraid of these odds. And when I speak, I don't speak as a Democrat or a Republican, nor an American. I speak as a victim of America's so-called democracy. You and I have never seen democracy. All we've seen is hypocrisy. We don't see any American dream. We've experienced only the American nightmare. And the generation that's coming up now can see it and are not afraid to say it. If, if you go to jail, so what? If you're black, you were born in jail. If you're black, you were born in jail. In the North as well as the South. Stop talking about the South. Long as you're south of the, long as you south of the Canadian border, you're South. This is why I say it's the ballot or the bullet. It's liberty or it's death. It's freedom for everybody or freedom for nobody. America today finds herself in a unique situation. Historically, revolutions are bloody. Oh, yes, they are. They have never had a bloodless revolution or a nonviolent revolution. That don't happen even in Hollywood. You don't have a revolution in which you love your enemy. And you don't have a revolution in which you are begging the system of exploitation to integrate you into it. Revolutions overturn systems. Revolutions destroy systems. A revolution is bloody, because if you don't see it, you're finished. If you don't see it, you're going, to be coming, you're going to become involved in some action in which you don't have a chance. We don't care anything about your atomic bomb. It's, it's useless, because other countries have atomic bombs. When two or three different countries have atomic bombs, nobody can use it. So it means that the white man today is without a weapon. If, you're going to, if you want some action, you've got to come on down to Earth. And there's more black people on earth than there are white people on earth. It'll be, it'll be the, the ballot or it'll be the bullet. It'll be liberty or it'll be death. And if you're not ready to pay that price, don't use the word freedom in your vocabulary. The hope felt by many in the wake of the March on Washington and the victories of 1964 never really made it its way into the northern slums, which were instead becoming saturated with bitterness and resentment, desperation and, and rage. A rage that, that curdles the soul. You know, it's a popular... American myth, or maybe a more general Christian myth, that suffering ennobles human beings. Maybe sometimes it does, but more often than not, suffering does not ennoble us, but only degrades and 
brings out in the in us the worst. It makes us suspicious. It makes us reactive, paranoid, and spiteful. The author James Baldwin, a morally sensitive man for any age, he sort of became something like a thermostat for these feelings as he evolved over the 1960s. He was excluded as a speaker from the March on Washington because it was feared that he would be too confrontational and inflammatory. Baldwin was a man with very little hope that things would get better on their own, or that white people could be relied upon to reform the society without being forced to. Hopelessness takes its effect on even a man as sensitive as Baldwin, and bitterness leaks through in passages like this one from an essay he wrote, Negroes are anti-Semitic because they're anti-white. It appeared in the New York Times in the 1960s. Quote, When we were growing up in Harlem, our demoralizing series of landlords were Jewish, and we hated them. We hated them because they were terrible landlords and did not take care of the building. A coat of paint, a broken window, a stopped sink, a stopped toilet, a sagging floor, a broken ceiling, a dangerous stairwell, the question of garbage disposal, the question of heat and cold, of roaches and rats, all questions of life and death for the poor, and especially for those with children. We had to cope with all of these as best we could. Our parents were lashed down to futureless jobs in order to pay the outrageous rent. We knew that the landlord treated us this way only because we were colored, and he knew that we could not move out. The grocer was a Jew, and being in debt to him was very much like being in debt to the company store. The butcher was a Jew, and yes, certainly we paid more for bad cuts of meat than other New York citizens, and we very often carried insults home along with the meat. We bought our clothes from a Jew, and... Sometimes our second-hand shoes, and the pawnbroker was a Jew. Perhaps we hated him most of all. The merchants along 125th Street were Jewish. At least many of them were. I don't know if Grants or Woolworths are Jewish names, and I well remember that it was only after the Harlem riot of 1935 that Negroes were allowed to earn a little money in some of the stores where they spent so much. All of these people were exploiting us, and that was why we hated them. But we also hated the welfare workers, we hated the policemen, not all of whom were Jewish and some of whom were black. The poor of whatever color do not trust the law and certainly have no reason to, and God knows we didn't. We hated many of our teachers at school because they so clearly despised us and treated us like dirty, ignorant savages. Not all of these teachers were Jewish. Some of them, alas, were black. I used to carry my father's union dues downtown for him sometimes. I hated everybody in that den of thieves especially the man who took the envelope from me, the envelope which contained my father's hard-earned money, that envelope which contained bread for his children. Thieves, I thought, every one of you. And I know I was right about that, and I have not changed my mind. But whether or not all of these people were Jewish, I really don't know. The army may or may not be controlled by Jews. I don't know and don't care. I know that when I worked for the army, I hated all my bosses because of the way they treated me. I don't know if the post office is Jewish, but I would certainly dread working for it again. I don't know if Wanamaker's was Jewish, but I didn't like running their elevator, and I didn't like any of their customers. I don't know if Nabisco is Jewish, but I didn't like cleaning their basement. I don't know if Rikers is Jewish, but I didn't like scrubbing their floors. I don't know if the last taxi driver who refused to stop for me was Jewish, but I know I hoped he'd break his neck before he got home. It is true that many Jews use shamelessly the slaughter of the six million by the Third Reich as proof that they cannot be bigots, 
or in the hope of not being held responsible for their bigotry. It is galling to be told by a Jew whom you know to be exploiting you that he cannot possibly be doing what you know he is doing because he is a Jew. It is bitter to watch the Jewish storekeeper locking up his store for the night and going home, going with your money in his pocket to a clean neighborhood miles from you, which you will not be allowed to enter. Nor can it help when part of this money is donated to civil rights. In the light of what is now known as the white backlash, this money can be looked on as conscience money merely, as money given to keep the Negro happy in his place and out of white neighborhoods. End quote. And he goes on like this for a while, but you get the idea. You know, Baldwin is not coming from a happy place here. He's not giving us a window into a content or generous heart. Those are the words of a man whose spirit has been battered by degradation. And however sympathetic we are to a spirit so battered, it's still not a pretty thing to see or hear. Malcolm was front-running the shift to radicalism. He'd become steadily more militant and his rhetoric more violent. It was alarming mainstream civil rights leaders, but it was inspiring legions of younger activists, and he knew it. He said there's a group of youngsters cropping up who is getting tired of this brutality against our people. They're going to take some action. It might be misguided. It might be disorganized. It might be unintelligent, but they're going to get a little action. And there are going to be some whites who are going to join along with them. Already in 1962, even Elijah Muhammad had found it necessary to pull on Malcolm's leash. When a black Muslim was killed by police in Los Angeles, Malcolm invoked the long-prophesied war of racial Armageddon and called on blacks everywhere to rise up and violently retaliate against white America. Well, Elijah Muhammad had to slap Malcolm down for that and publicly canceled his call to arms. Shortly after President Kennedy was assassinated in November 1963, Malcolm was asked by a reporter for his thoughts. The American public was in deep mourning over the young president, and Elijah Muhammad had forbidden any public criticism of JFK in the aftermath, but Malcolm told the reporter that the bullet in Kennedy's head was just chickens coming home to roost, and that it didn't make him, make him sad, it made him glad. Brian Burroughs describes Malcolm's end. Quote, this was too much for Muhammad. Amid widespread shock, he suspended Malcolm for three months. Malcolm spent the time touring the United States with his newest acolyte, the prize fighter Cassius Clay. That's Muhammad Ali for anyone who didn't know his original name. Afterward, on March 8, 1964, Malcolm announced he was quitting the nation to form a new group, the Organization of Afro-American Unity. It was the beginning of the end. Malcolm spent much of the next year overseas on a pilgrimage to Mecca and a tour of African and European capitals. In his absence, Harlem exploded in 10 days of riots after an off-duty police officer killed a 15-year-old black boy. Helmeted police fired into crowds of angry blacks who responded by throwing rocks and burning cars. Black nationalists who led the riots wasted no time in placing the violence squarely in the context of Malcolm's new idea of bloody revolution. There is only one thing that can correct the situation, one told the crowd, and that's guerrilla warfare. All they needed to set New York ablaze, he went on, was 100 skilled revolutionaries who are ready to die. Such comments, however, went all but unnoticed in the white press. What no one realized was that the first to die would be Malcolm himself. During his travels, tensions with the Nation of Islam escalated into death threats. Muhammad himself told Louis Farrakhan that Hypocrites like Malcolm should have their heads cut off. 
an issue of the nation's newspaper, Muhammad Speaks, actually carried a cartoon showing Malcolm's severed head bouncing free of his body. The end was all but preordained. On February 21, 1965, just days after Malcolm returned from Europe, he was about to address a nationalist meeting in Harlem when he was rushed by several black Muslims. They opened fire with pistols and a sawed-off shotgun. He was dead within minutes, his body riven by 21 gunshot wounds. Malcolm's death, however, did little to stop his message. If anything, his popularity grew. 30,000 people attended a viewing of his body. His posthumous book, The Autobiography of Malcolm X, became mandatory reading for every budding black radical. End quote. Malcolm's death in February 65 began what would be an extremely traumatic year for the movement and for the United States as a whole. The Vietnam War was escalating rapidly by now. The Johnson administration will have sent 82,000 troops to Vietnam by 1965, and military leaders were already requesting another 175,000. Victories for the civil rights movement in Congress were just a backdrop for devastating race riots that would continue for the rest of the decade and destroy what there was of an economic base and civil society in America's black ghettos. Blacks in the Deep South were finding out what blacks in the northern cities had long known. Ending legal segregation and discrimination would not change the situation on the ground by itself. In the United States, you know, the, the power of the federal government to regulate individual behavior is very limited, especially when state and local officials are united in maintaining the situation as it is. Civil rights groups across the South very quickly bumped up against those limits, realizing that it would be on them to defend the rights that had been accorded to them by the Civil Rights Act passed the previous year. You know, the simple fact was and remains today that politicians are elected. That includes sheriffs and prosecutors and judges are appointed by elected politicians. If the Southern caste system was being defended by a resolute phalanx of state and local officials, nothing short of the federal government calling out the army was going to force change and the feds were never going to do anything like that. Politicians were being elected by supporters of segregation who used intimidation, harassment, and violence to prevent blacks and whites who were against segregation from voting. And civil rights leaders were beginning to realize that rights were not enough. They needed power. And in America, power means voting. And there were many inspirational stories out of the Freedom Summer of 1964, but the on-the-ground results were pretty limited, and activists knew the importance of keeping up momentum in a campaign like this. So they didn't let up in 1965, and by the next spring, the next front had opened in Alabama. A local African-American group called the Dallas County Voters League had been attempting to register black voters in Selma, Alabama since 1963, but they had met with fierce resistance and made very little progress. SNCC had been on the ground working since near the beginning, but in 1965, the DCVL called on Martin Luther King Jr. to come in and support their efforts. And he showed up with several other organizers and activists from his group, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. With the increased attention and enthusiasm that that brought, demonstrations began, and by the end of February, over 3,000 people had been arrested. On February 26th, a young black man named Jimmy Lee Jackson was shot and killed during a nonviolent march in a nearby town and in an effort to 
redirect outrage over the shooting away from a violent response and into something productive. SCLC leaders called for a long march from Selma to the state capital of Montgomery. And so they gathered. And the first attempt took place on Sunday, March 7th. Demonstrators gathered and and, and made their way toward the county line. And when they crossed, they were set upon by state police and local posses with clubs while tear gas drove the marchers back across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. A picture of Amelia Boynton beaten on the bridge was circulated worldwide and the sight of her unconscious body brought outrage and attention onto what was going on in Selma in March 1965. And now with everybody watching... Two days later, the marchers regrouped to make another attempt to cross that bridge. Many had come from around the eastern United States to join this second march, including many clergymen. The activists had been seeking federal protection for the march, which was really the the point of all this, to force the, the federal government to defend the constitutional rights of these people against state and local authorities. And so there was an injunction on the march. Uh, put on by a federal judge uh, while the decision was pending. This time, they were met at the far end of the bridge, but state police parted to let them pass, hoping that the marchers would break the federal injunction by continuing on. Instead, having progressed to that next stage, King led the marchers back to the church where they'd begun. He'd taken it that one step further, they would take it to the next step next time. That night, James Reeb, A minister from Boston who'd come to Selma to participate in the march was beaten to death by a white mob. Civil rights protests erupt around the area of Selma, with demonstrators demanding federal laws guaranteeing the voting rights against state and local attempts to interfere with them. President Lyndon Johnson called a joint session of Congress and demanded passage of a Voting Rights Act on March 15th. Soon after, a third attempt to bring the march to consummation was was being planned. It was planned to go forward on the 21st. Governor George Wallace, segregation now and forever, uh, that that guy, he refused to protect the march, so the president called on 1,900 National Guardsmen to do the job. Having finally secured federal protection for their constitutional right to demonstrate, over 25,000 marchers covered about 10 miles a day up Route 80, entering Montgomery on March 24th. It's a mark of some progress, perhaps, that a black president was in office to deliver a speech at Selma on the 50th anniversary of this march to secure voting rights for black Americans. But the celebration afterwards, celebration couldn't last. You know, people leave the Capitol, people break off from the marches, people go home to their difficult everyday lives. There were no important elections in 1965, no occasion to exercise the newly strengthened right to vote. There was just... The same shopkeeper who didn't want you in his store, the same restaurants that wouldn't seat you, the same sneering bus drivers and cab drivers pretending to be blind when you try to flag them down, and of course the same policemen stopping and harassing you on thin pretext, with the ever-present threat of violence or death if you said the wrong word or made the wrong move. It's not an accident that when Sections of the civil rights movement began to break off into militancy and bloody violence. It wasn't politicians or soldiers or slumlords they targeted. It was cops. In many big cities, police forces had been transformed by prohibition, militarized by the need to combat well-armed, organized criminals. And when the Great Migration brought vast numbers of black people into the cities, 
the police often had what was essentially a military relationship to them in their communities. Blacks arrested in most big cities in the 1960s could routinely expect to get beat down. When blacks were killed by police, there was very rarely an outcry or even much interest, and it was extraordinarily rare for police to be disciplined for violence against blacks. These conditions, when you join them with the endemic poverty, housing and employment discrimination, overcrowding, and all the rest make for a tinderbox, one with ideological gasoline being poured on it by Malcolm and other prophets of black empowerment and self-defense. Malcolm had focused on the police issue because it was one with which his audiences in Detroit, Harlem, Chicago, and everywhere else could relate. Always. In some ways, movements like the Nation of Islam saw the future and were attempts, muddled, confused attempts, to organize the black community before the inevitable happened. You know, an organized community has leaders and institutions by means of which it can understand and articulate its grievances and demand their redress. One of the problems with the programs of Malcolm and others was that they helped precipitate the coming events before the necessary organization had taken place. It was after a police shooting in Los Angeles in 1962 that Malcolm had called on blacks to rise up in rebellion. In 1962, what could that have even meant? Other than just a, a blind, violent riot. After an incident in 1965, they finally did. But they weren't prepared, and the results were catastrophic. Urban blacks were not yet an organized community with leaders and with institutions. And another word, again, for a disorganized community is a mob. And if there's one thing that the state, the status quo power structure knows how to deal with, it's a mob. There have been many times in the history of U.S. racial violence where, when, when blacks had stood their ground and fought. The first example of a race riot of the kind that we think of today, though, as, uh, as, as sort of archetypal of this type of violence probably happened in Detroit in the 1940s. What had begun as a labor dispute between white and black workers exploded into days of racial violence. Whites caught in black neighborhoods were attacked, stores were looted, buildings were burned, and no one's really in control of a mob. And so those acting out of genuine frustration are difficult to distinguish from those engaging in nihilistic violence, and there's no but he around to stop the latter. No inward structure to say that those people are not acting on our behalf. That's not what this is about. It's anarchy. And the boldest and most violent set the tone until they burn themselves out or until they're met with greater force. After a routine traffic stop in Watts, a neighborhood in Los Angeles in 1965, LAPD officers gave a black parolee a sobriety test, after which they were preparing to arrest him and impound his car because he was drunk driving. It was his mother's car, actually. The stop took place near his mother's home, and so the driver's brother, who had been a passenger in the car, walked over to her house to go get her. And she showed up, told off her son about drinking and driving, but one thing led to another, and she was pushed by a police officer. Her son made a move to defend her, and he was hit. And the mother moved to defend her son from a beating. Another officer pulled a shotgun, and pretty soon a crowd is forming around from around the neighborhood. The mother and brother are arrested for fighting with the cops, and the crowd is starting to become agitated, and some of them are starting to shout and throw objects at the police. It's really easy 
uh, I've seen this a lot over the last several years, to excerpt individual incidents from their context and to hear any attempts to put the events back into a broader context as attempts to just excuse bad behavior. You know, by nature, I'm a law and order type. Uh, and my own reading of history has reinforced that natural tendency with a feeling that order is fragile and precious and has to be protected. People hear about this event that I just described, that, that this event that eventually here precipitates the Watts riots of 1965. And it's very easy and, and, and quite natural to say the guy shouldn't have been driving drunk, that he shouldn't have resisted arrest, that his mother and family shouldn't have gotten involved, and that the crowd was out of line reacting to the situation in the way they did. It's the same way of thinking that leads others to say that the Palestinians in Gaza should never fire rockets into Israel or that we should be able to dump half a million young men into a dirty war in Vietnam and never expect a Milai or other kind of atrocity. It's like, yes, that should never happen. And the people who do it are in the wrong. And I understand and sympathize with the mentality that says, I don't want to hear the excuses. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't want to hear that. Nobody but the people firing the rockets or pulling the triggers or engaging in the riot are responsible for their destructive actions. And I get it. And it's true. And it's absolutely the case that contextualization can bleed over a blurry line into excuse making and that there are negative consequences when that line becomes blurry. But there are also just human realities at play that can't be discounted. And it's simply the case that intolerable situations will not be tolerated forever. In an interview a year before the Watts riot, or rebellion if you like, Malcolm X said that by trying to organize a black militant movement, he was actually trying to head off the kind of disorganized violence that ended up exploding in Los Angeles in 1965. He said that resistance was inevitable. It was coming because the situation was intolerable and that the resistance could either be organized and well-led or else it would be disorganized and end up being led by the darkest and most nihilistic elements. When more police showed up to attempt to disperse the growing crowd there in Watts at the scene of the arrest, it soon became clear that the people, now gathering together, were starting to feel their collective power. It was boiling hot, miserably, oppressively hot in the middle of August in South L.A. One of those hot nights where people are prickly and the police are already preparing to respond to more bar fights and domestic disputes than usual. When the cops tried to split up the crowd, they were pelted with rocks and blocks of concrete. And riots just exploded. Looting, burning, attacks by roaming gangs of young black men on any non-blacks they found in, in their part of the city. Buildings and businesses owned by non-blacks were targeted for destruction. And this is a pattern that would repeat itself in the future. In 1965, the non-blacks being targeted were white and Latino for the most part. At the Crown Heights riots in the early 90s, Jews were targeted uh, by black mobs. In the 1992 Rodney King riots, well, uh, some some people have actually described those riots in Los Angeles as an anti-Korean pogrom. When you hear the passage I quoted from James Baldwin talking about Jews in Harlem, it's really not that big of a leap to go from there to targeted violence once order breaks down and authority temporarily abdicates. The L.A. police chief at the time thought the Watts riots resembled an insurgency, and that misapprehension shaped the city's paramilitary response. Nearly 20,000 law enforcement and National Guard personnel were mobilized to put down the violence. 20,000. 
in which over 30,000 of the residents were actively participating in the violence, aided by tens of thousands more who were sympathetic or passive participants. The police department instituted a curfew and approved mass arrests of anybody found in violation of it. Over the course of six days, nearly 3,500 people were arrested. 34 people were killed and over 1,000 were injured. Over 1,000 buildings were burned, looted, or destroyed, and there was an estimated $320 million in property damage. And it was total breakdown, total catastrophe. And as we'll see, it was only the beginning. The political authorities afterwards went looking for explanations for what had happened because, uh, to be perfectly honest, like before this, uh, the, the not to... Not to uh, have a have an unintentional pun here, but the black neighborhoods, as far as the political authorities were concerned, were mostly just a black hole. They didn't pay a lot of attention to them. They didn't have any intelligence on what was going on in the ground. They're, they just, the way people were feeling, it was a police issue. The police was the arm of government that interfaced with these communities for the most part. Politicians and political authorities had real no real clue about what was even going on there. And, and they were not prepared to wrap their minds around the scope of what had happened. Was it an irrational overreaction to a traffic stop? Well, no, that's not good enough. But maybe it was a predictable overreaction due to a toxic relationship between the police and the black community. There's something to that. And many people then and now like to focus on the behavior of street cops, I think, as a means of avoiding larger and more complicated questions. A former CIA director, John McCone, headed a commission that was appointed to suss out the causes of the Watts riots, and its message could not have been starker. The root causes, the commission said, were to be found in the awful living conditions, the underfunded schools, the police brutality, housing discrimination, and just overall miserable situation in which blacks found themselves in the Watts community. Its recommendations included, quote, emergency literacy and preschool programs, improved police community ties, increased low-income housing, more job training projects, upgraded health care services, more efficient public transportation, and more. End quote. It goes without saying, I think, that these rec recommendations were mostly ignored. Everybody made positive noises about their necessity, but the political authorities were not prepared to take on anything like this. And although the report was a, a very a brilliantly conceived, well-meant document, even the commission was limited in ways that, that, that made it inevitable that it would avoid many of the larger issues. And I'm not condemning them. I think people generally agree that McCone and, and the commission did its best. It's understandable, perfectly understandable to me, why people would want to avoid the larger issues. Because when you really start opening up to it, the causes start to pile up and stretch back and spiral out and metastasize until... You're in 1965 talking about 1865 and then talking about 1765 and having to face up to the fact that what we're dealing with is an almost unfathomably deep and complicated tragedy that took centuries of abuse and neglect to create and that no speech or court decision or policy change was going to fix within the lifetimes of anyone considering it. And the most pragmatic solutions had to do with educating children differently. I mean... I mean, in the whole society, and although they'd pick up some of the attitudes of their parents, those attitudes would now be in competition with different perspectives. And then another generation later, their kids would get that education and you'd make a little more progress and so on. But, you know, good luck telling the people in the broken down 
sweltering ghettos across America that their great grandkids might, if they all behaved themselves for the next hundred years and didn't set things back through rioting or too inflamed rhetoric, achieve something like equality. Martin Luther King's religious convictions gave him the faith that change might come in the form of a mass awakening. You know, that racial brotherhood could come to individuals and society almost in the character of a mass religious conversion. But more and more we're coming around to the perspective of Malcolm and the black nationalists and beginning to wonder why people were struggling so hard for a world that nobody really seemed to want. Why were black people fighting against housing discrimination just so they could live next door to people that did not want them as neighbors? You know, you couldn't unring the bells of the last several centuries. Was it really possible to erase the centuries of having to bow and scrape that had by the 19, you know, by the mid 60s created almost an ethos among many young urban blacks that having a hostile relationship to to the white power structure and even to white people as a whole that that was part of being a man? Even if they got everything they asked for, was it really going to be possible to live as equals in a society which had formerly enslaved you? and had self-righteously allowed you the privileges of being a full human being out of the goodness and kindness of their hearts? Could you ever feel good about that? The dream of Martin Luther King that one day little white boys and girls would play with little black boys and girls in a colorblind liberal society where only individual character and merit mattered was giving way to an open form of identity politics in which people positively asserted that no, people are different and groups are different. And that while America had been able to assimilate Germans and Catholic ethnics and even Jews, there had simply been an abject failure to socially or economically assimilate blacks. And despite the outrages of the past, some black leaders were starting to say that maybe that was for the best. You know, a people is molded and bound together into a common identity by shared suffering and aspiration. And Although black men had fought in America's wars and participated in the movements for workers' rights, the struggle of American blacks was unique and had bound them together into a people of their own. Not African, but certainly not American. And why was everybody banging their heads against the wall and creating so much conflict by trying to force that issue? This is the perspective of the emerging black nationalist scene. In the year before his death, Malcolm X had acquired as a follower of the boxer who had become Muhammad Ali. Ali remained with the Nation of Islam after Malcolm's death, and in an interview a little while later, he articulated this outlook with his typical unique touch. People to move in the neighborhoods, we clean their own neighborhoods. And another thing, when you say integration, it comes on the end of marriage too, right? All right. been together. Right, sure. And I'm sure no intelligent white person watching this show, or no intelligent uh, white man in his or her right white mind, want black boys and black girls marrying their white sons and daughters and in return introducing their grandchildren as half-brown, kinky-haired black people. I, w I, and wouldn't, I'm sure I I'm, wouldn't object to that. Well, you wouldn't, but a lot of them would. Well, I'm sure a lot of people would. No, it's, it's the what I'm trying to say is this. What I'm trying to say is this. Uh, and you don't have it. You say you don't, but you don't have it. You really ain't going to have it. You're on the show and you got to say that. Well, no, 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 no,
Why would you want to do that? Because, because like I, don't think, I don't think I'm any different from you, you see. Uh, yeah, we, yeah, we're much different. That's I mean, I think society's you know, made us different. You know we're different. We're all together but society's different. made us different. No, not society. God made us different. No, no, we're just human beings. He made all no, of no, us. We all, listen, bluebirds fly with bluebirds. Red birds want to be with red birds. <laughs> listen, listen, tell me when I'm wrong. Pigeons want to be with pigeons. But tell we me when I'm wrong. Well, we must, well, we should have more. They don't have intelligence, but yet they stay together. We should have more intelligence than them, right? <laughs> buzzards are with buzzards. Yeah. Buzzards are with buzzards. Bluebirds are with bluebirds. They all are birds, but they've got different cultures. The eagles like to hang out in the mountains. The buzzards like to fly around the desert. Well, the bluebird like to fly around the trees and the grass. There'd be problems a buzzard mating with a sparrow, wouldn't there? What? There'd be certain. <laughs> right, right. And that's, I mean, we have the problems too. No, I don't see. I don't see. <laughs> I don't see no black and white couples in England or America walking around proud holding their children. That's because society... And, and going out. That's, that's society's fault. Well, I, mean, well, so, well, but, I mean, we've got to educate well, people around it. Well, life is too short for me to be raised catching hell for something like that. I'd rather go and be my own. I have a beautiful daughter, beautiful wife. They look like me. We're all happy, and I don't have no trouble. <laughs> and, uh, I have no trouble. Ain't, I ain't that much in love with no woman to go through all that hell. Ain't no one woman that good. <laughs> you understand? I understand, yeah. I just, I do understand. I understand, but I think it's, I think it's sad that... that, that it ain't sad because I want my child sad. to look it's like me. Attitude. Every intelligent person wants his child to look like him. I'm sad because I want to blot out my race and lose my beautiful identity. Chinese love Chinese. They love the little slanted-out, pretty brown-skinned babies. Pakistanis love their culture. Jewish people love their culture. A lot of Catholics don't want to marry number Catholics. They want the religion to stay the same. Who want to spot up yourself and kill your race? You're you a hater of your people if you don't want to stay who you are. You shame what God made you. God didn't make no mistake when he made us all like we I, were. I think that's a philosophy um, of despair. Despair. I really do. It ain't it's, no despair. Yeah? Number one, can't no woman. Let me tell you something. Well, I'll tell you. Listen, no woman on this whole earth, not even a black woman in Muslim countries, can please me and cook for me and socialize and talk to me like my American black woman. No woman, at last, is a white woman can really identify with me and my feelings and the way I act and the way I talk. And you can't take no Chinese man and give him no Puerto Rican woman and holler about we're in love and you emotionally in love and physically, but really they're not happy because she's going to hear some Puerto Rican music, he's going to hear some Chinese music. And they're going to be clashing all the time. It's just nature. You can do what you want, but it's nature to want to be with your own. I want to be with my own. And so in 1966, we continue to move along. Although separatism and militancy is on the rise, the battle over the movement, within the movement, is, is not over. The sacrifices that, that, that were made by the mainstream Southern movement under the leadership of men like Martin Luther King could not be denied. And only those who were already siding with the militants denied that progress had been achieved. King himself still commanded the moral high ground with dignity and gravity, and even most of those who disagreed with his approach were you know, at least respectful enough to go silent when he spoke. One of the proximate causes of the Watts riots, often mentioned by civil rights leaders at the time, had to do with discriminatory housing policies, which had had the effect of confining blacks to these poor neighborhoods in these big cities with inadequate public transportation to help them get to where any of the jobs were, assuming those jobs would take them. With all the sort of vague and, and ambiguous issues about, you know, that, that defied easy solutions. This was at least an issue to latch on to. And it was one of the primary issues cited by the McCone report as a cause of the violence. So at the urging of political and civil rights leaders in the North, 
Martin Luther King, uh, in 1966, with a few other leaders of the Southern movement, left the South to join up with the Chicago Freedom Movement, also known as the Chicago Open Housing Movement, partly to take advantage of the political capital and attention brought by the McCone Report, but, but really hoping to head off in Chicago what had just happened the previous summer in Los Angeles. Referring to the black residents of Chicago and other northern cities, Martin Luther King told a newspaper that, quote, The nonviolent movement of the South has meant little to them, since we have been fighting for rights that theoretically are already theirs, end quote. And King moved into a Chicago apartment and prepared for the long haul, but to be quite honest, he really did not know what he was in for. I'll quote from Isabella Wilkerson's telling in The Warmth of Other Sons, quote, Chicago was a turning point for King. His movement was aging, its actions drawing greater skepticism, and its successes leaving him with fewer obvious dragons to slay. It was a campaign looking for a cause. The inroads into Southern segregation gave King a greater awareness of the unresolved tensions in the North in the wake of the Great Migration. Negroes have continued to flee from behind the cotton curtain, King told the crowd at Buckingham Fountain near the Loop, testing out a new theme in virgin territory. But now they find that after years of indifference and exploitation, Chicago has not turned out to be the new Jerusalem. Yet the very thing that made black life hard in the North, the very nature of Northern hostility, unwritten, mercurial, opaque, and eminently deniable, made it hard for King to nail down an obvious right-versus-wrong cause to protest. Blacks in the North could already vote and sit at a lunch counter or anywhere they wanted on an elevated train, Yet they were hemmed in and isolated in two overcrowded sections of the city, the south side and the west side. Restricted in the jobs they could hold, in the mortgages they could get, their children attending segregated and inferior schools, not by edict, as in the south, but by circumstance in the north, with the results pretty much the same. The unequal living conditions produced the expected unequal results. Blacks working long hours for overpriced flats, their children left unsupervised and open to gangs, the resulting rise in crime and drugs with few people able to get out, and the problem so complex as to make it impossible to identify a single cause or solution. King was running headlong into what the sociologist Gunnar Merdahl called the Great Northern Paradox. In the North, Merdahl wrote, almost everybody is against discrimination in general. But at the same time, almost everybody practices discrimination in his own personal affairs. That is, by not allowing blacks into unions or clubhouses, certain jobs in white neighborhoods, indeed avoiding social interaction overall. It is the culmination of all these personal discriminations, he continued, which creates the color bar in the North. And for the Negro, causes unusually severe unemployment, crowded housing conditions, crime and vice. About this social process, the ordinary white northerner keeps blindly ignorant and unconcerned. Thus, any civil rights campaign in the North would not be an open attack on outrageous laws that, with enough grit and fortitude, could be overturned with the stroke of a pen. Instead, King would be fighting an ill-defined fear and antipathy that made northern whites flee at the sight of a black neighbor, turn away blacks at real estate offices, or not hire them if they chose. The enemy was a feeling, a general unease that led to the flight of white people and businesses and sucked the resources out of the ghettos the migrants were quarantined into. No laws could make frightened white northerners care enough about blacks to permit them full access to the system they dominated. 
so long as this city is dominated by whites, whether because of their numbers without force or by force if they are in the minority, the Chicago Tribune once wrote, there will be limitations placed on black people. Still, despite the odds, King was compelled to go north, was called to it, he said, as had a good portion of his people in the still unfolding migration. He had made the journey himself when he had gone to Boston University for graduate school, and while there met his wife Coretta, another Southerner. King's campaign in the North was, in one sense, simply reacting to a major shift in the epicenter of black America, the historian James R. Ralph wrote. It was following the great demographic flow of black Americans from the rural South to the urban North. King actually moved into an apartment in the most hard-scrabble section of town, the west side neighborhood of North Lawndale, where the poorest and most recent arrivals from the South had shakily established themselves. He had a chess-like series of encounters with Mayor Richard Daly, the mayor boss of Chicago, who managed to outwit the civil rights leader at nearly every turn. For one thing, Daly knew not to make the same mistakes as his southern counterparts. He met with King, appearing cooperative rather than ignoring him or having him thrown into jail. He vowed to protect the marchers with a heavy police presence, which sometimes outnumbered the marchers. It worked so well that the protesters rarely had the chance to contrast their peaceable courage against foaming at the mouth supremacists because Daly's force didn't let any white mob get near them, which kept the protests off the news and kept the movement from gaining traction, just as Daly had hoped. That is, until after months of buildup, King went to march against housing segregation in a neighborhood called Marquette Park, on the city's southwest side. This was a working-class neighborhood of Poles, Lithuanians, Germans, and Italians who had not long since gotten their starter bungalows and were standing their ground against the very thought of colored people moving in. It was August 5, 1966. A fish-shaking crowd of some 4,000 residents had gathered in advance. Upon his arrival, they cursed King with epithets from a knoll overlooking the march. Many people in the crowd waved Confederate flags, some wore Nazi-like helmets. One placard read, King would look good with a knife in his back. The march had barely begun when a heckler hurled rocks as big as a fist at King, striking him in the head just above the right ear. He fell to his knees, and as he tried to get up, the crowd pelted the demonstrators with bottles, eggs, firecrackers, and more rocks. Some in the crowd turned and smashed rocks into cars and buses that passed by with colored people in them. Some 1,200 police officers and 200 plainclothesmen had gathered in anticipation of trouble, but this was one of the rare occasions where they were outnumbered by white residents primed for confrontation. As the 800 King supporters tried to carry on the march, they passed men, women, and children on their front stoops who called the marchers cannibals, savages, and worse. A column of 300 jeering white teenagers sat in the middle of the street to block the marchers' path. The police dispersed the youth with nightsticks, and the march was able to resume but the teenagers repositioned themselves half a block down and sat in the street again. It took a second charge from the police to break up the young hecklers. When the march wound down, the people chased the buses carrying King's people away. Rising in agitation that lasted for hours, the mob smashed an effigy of King, overturned a car in Marquette Road, stoned other cars, and fought police trying to clear the place out, some requiring reinforcements to beat the mob back with clubs and shots fired into the air. In the end, some 30 people were injured and 40 were arrested. Some of King's aides had warned him not to go to Chicago. He said he had to. I have to do this, he said as he tried to steady himself after the stoning, to expose myself, to bring this hate into the open. 
He had marched in the deepest corners of Alabama, but he was unprepared for what he was in for in Chicago. I have seen many demonstrations in the South, he said that violent day in the promised land, but I have never seen anything so hostile and so hateful as I have seen here today. End quote. That pushback against King's efforts in Chicago was seen by many of his more militant critics as confirmation of what their suspicion had been, that, that King's efforts toward nonviolence had already achieved what they were going to achieve, and that further ground would have to be seized, not by appealing to the humanity of white America, but appealing to its fear. 1966 was a very difficult year for the nonviolent movement, and Martin Luther King had had to expend considerable political capital within the movement to hold things together. A few months before the events in Chicago, Dr. King was back in Atlanta presiding over a staff meeting in SCLC's headquarters when they received word that the civil rights leader James Meredith had been shot. Meredith, the first black man to attend the University of Mississippi, had planned to march the 220 miles from Memphis, Tennessee to Jackson, Mississippi, alone if necessary, but he had called on local black men to join him. He was shot in the back by a white sniper just one day into the long walk. When the news was announced at the SCLC staff meeting, there was a brief moment of shocked silence before the lull gave way to outrage. So King and other leaders took a vote and determined to go down there and take up the march in Meredith's name and, and complete it in his name, and they made ready to leave for Memphis. Despite initial reports that Meredith had been killed, it was soon learned that he had pulled himself to safety behind a parked car and that he was recovering in the hospital. When King and members of his staff flew into Memphis, they went straight to the municipal hospital to see Meredith. Quote, We were happy to find Meredith resting well. After expressing our sympathy and gratitude for his courageous witness, we shared our conviction with him that the march should continue in order to demonstrate to the nation and the world that Negroes would never again be intimidated by the terror of extremist white violence. Realizing that Meredith was often a loner, and that he probably wanted to continue the march without a large group, we thought that it would take a great deal of persuasion to convince him that the issue involved the whole civil rights movement. Fortunately, he soon saw this and agreed that we should continue without him. We spent some time discussing the character and logistics of the march, and agreed that we would consult with him daily on every decision. As we prepared to leave, the nurse came to the door and said, Mr. Meredith, there is a Mr. Carmichael in the lobby who would like to see you and Dr. King. Should I give him permission to come in? End quote. Now, Martin Luther King knew Stokely Carmichael from working together during some of the most important and heated civil rights battles of the last several years. Carmichael was impossible to ignore or forget. He was just 25 years old when he came to that hospital in Memphis to meet King and Meredith. Stokely Carmichael was tall. He was well put together, very charismatic, just a natural leader whose, whose powerful rhetoric still carried a bit of an accent from his Trinidadian birth. His friends sometime, sometimes called him Stokely Starmichael as a joke. You know, he, he had that kind of quality about him, that kind of charisma. Ebony Magazine wrote that he walks like Sidney Poitier, talks like Harry Belafonte, and thinks like the post-Muslim Malcolm X. You know, so he's got that quality about him. Raised in the Bronx, educated at Howard University, he threw himself into full-time organizing after he finished school, uh, organizing for SNCC just in time for the 1964 Freedom Summer. And that summer in Mississippi, Carmichael watched blacks be hosed down and threatened with dogs. And the next year in Montgomery, Alabama, he watched black people beaten down by a bunch of police and he suffers an emotional breakdown. 
Um, after that, he swore that he would never be hit again without hitting someone back. During the 64 summer voter registration drives preceding that year's November election, a split began to develop within SNCC that would prove fateful, and Carmichael was at the center of it. Many like him were radicalized after witnessing the savagery and determination of the opposition, and they'd begun to doubt the continued usefulness of the nonviolent approach. Following Malcolm X's dismissal of the Democratic Party as a, as, as a legitimate vehicle for black liberation, some of them formed a separate party with the goal of winning enough votes to force the larger Democratic Party, the mainstream Democratic Party, to accept the new party's delegates in something like a European-style parliamentary coalition. But the mainstream party wanted nothing to do with that, as you can imagine. And President Lyndon Johnson, who was going to be running for his first actual election, he had taken office after President Kennedy's assassination, uh, he even had its delegates placed under surveillance by the FBI. The Democratic National Committee sent two operatives down to Mississippi to attempt to take over the management of the movement from the grassroots activists. At this time... SNCC was still made up of black and white activists. The majority of the white activists were Jewish, as were the two Democratic operatives sent to wrest control of the Mississippi Project. The experience of 1964 left Stokely Carmichael and many like him within SNCC, many of the black activists in SNCC, very resentful and suspicious of the white activists. Whatever the good intentions of the white activists, there was a class differential that too often, maybe inevitably, Uh, bled over into condescension and arrogance. You know, again, it may have been inevitable. You've got a bunch of middle-class or or higher students, white students from prestigious universities, you know, coming down to organize black Southerners who were very often uneducated people. And there was a tendency by the white activists to to think that they always knew what was best and to essentially treat the blacks like children and try to take over and run the movement for them. You know, they get used to that role and it begins to seem natural that they should be the leaders, even though they're not from the region. They don't have the first idea what these people have been through or what they've done in the movement for the years before this 20-year-old, well-intentioned Jewish kid from Columbia University shows up in Mississippi to change the world. You know, Malcolm X had almost as much venom reserved for white liberals who called themselves allies as he did for northern police and southern sheriffs. In this crooked game of power politics here in America, the Negro, namely the race problem, integration, civil rights issue, are all nothing but tools used by the whites who call themselves liberals against another group of whites who call themselves conservatives, either to get into power or to retain power. Among whites here in America, The political teams are no longer divided into Democrats and Republicans. The whites who are now struggling for control of the American political throne are divided into liberal and conservative camps. The white liberals from both parties cross party lines to work together toward the same goal. And white conservatives from both parties do likewise. The white liberal differs from the white conservative only in one way. The liberal is more deceitful, more hypocritical than the conservative. Both want power, but the white liberal is the one who has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor, 
And by winning the friendship and support of the Negro, the white liberal is able to use the Negro as a pawn or a weapon in this political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and the white conservatives. The American Negro is nothing but a political football. And the white liberals control this ball through tricks or tokenism, false promises of integration and civil rights. In this game of deceiving and using the American Negro, the white liberals have complete cooperation of the Negro civil rights leaders who sell our people out for a few crumbs of token recognition, token gains, token progress. In the New York Tribune, in an editorial dated February the 5th, 1960, they pointed out that out of 11 million qualified Negro voters, only 2,700,000 actually take time to vote. This means that roughly speaking, only 3 million out of the 11 million Negroes who are qualified to vote take an active part. And the remaining 8 million remain voluntarily inactive. And yet it is this small minority, the three million Negro voters who help determine who will be the next president. If who will be the next president can be influenced by three million Negro voters, it is easy to see why the presidential candidates of both political parties put on such a false show with the civil rights bill and promises of integration. They must impress the three million voting Negroes who are the actual integration seekers. And if so much fuss is made over these three million integration seekers, what would the presidential candidates have to do to appease the eight million non-voting Negroes if they ever decided to become politically active? They hold the balance of power. Who are the eight million non-voting Negroes? What do they want? And why don't they vote? The three million uh, Negro, uh, Negro voters are the so-called middle-class Negroes, or high-class Negroes, or uppity Negroes, who are referred to by the late Howard University sociology professor E. Franklin Frazier as the black bourgeoisie who have been educated to think as patriotic individualists with no racial pride whatsoever, who believe in and look forward to the future integrated intermarried society that is constantly being promised to them by the Negro politician. And therefore, this integration-minded three million minority remain an active part of the white-controlled political parties. But it must never be overlooked that these three million Negro integration seekers are only a small minority of the 11 million qualified Negro voters. The 8 million non-voting Negroes are the majority, the downtrodden black masses. They have refused to vote. They've refused to take a part in politics because they reject the Uncle Tom approach of the clergy politician leadership that has been handpicked for the, for the so-called Negroes by the white man himself. 
This clergy politician leadership does not speak for the Negro majority. They don't speak for the black masses. They speak for the black bourgeoisie, the brainwashed, white-minded, middle-class minority, who because they are ashamed of their race, because they are ashamed of being black and don't want to be identified with black, they are seeking to lose this black identity by mixing and mingling and intermarrying and integrating with the white society. You know, they only wanted to help, uh, and they were often mystified and put off by the reaction their behavior often elicited from the blacks they were working with. And them being put off often seemed to the blacks like more paternalistic white people offended by uppity Negroes. This was all unintentional, um, an almost unavoidable result of the difficulty of communicating across a social gulf as wide as the one they were attempting to bridge. And it wouldn't help when, uh, you know, mentioned this in that James Baldwin passage earlier, it didn't help when many of the Jewish activists would attempt to reach across that gap by claiming that, you know, as Jews they too knew all about oppression, as if that's what a black Southerner laboring under Jim Crow needs to hear from a 20-year-old Jewish Ivy League student, you know. There's a lot of great analysis and commentary by black and Jewish writers on the relationship between these two communities during this period and its consequences for the civil rights movement, but the upshot for this part of our story is that the faction within SNCC that was forming up behind Stokely Carmichael was beginning to question whether the participation of the white activists was a net positive for the movement at all. Carmichael rose through the ranks of SNCC and began to take the organization in a new direction, away from emotionally gratifying marches and rallies to achieving real power through the ballot box. He targeted a county in Alabama where blacks outnumbered whites four to one, but in which only two blacks were registered to vote. He figured if he could register just 25% plus one more of the blacks in the county to vote and get them to the polls, that they could take over the county, elect their own sheriff. So Stokely Carmichael and Snick, they put on a strong effort, um, holding classes for first-time voters, not only in the political system, but on you know literacy classes and classes on African history, um, they played tapes of Malcolm's speeches for groups of people, which were full of ideas many blacks from rural Alabama had never heard. Um, they distributed pamphlets explaining how to cast a vote. These are mostly students doing this kind of stuff. They created a political party called the Lones Fa uh, County Freedom Organization, and they chose as its symbol a Black Panther. One of its co-founders stated publicly that it was Alabama's final chance to share power peacefully, saying... We're out to take power legally, but if we're stopped by the government from doing it legally, we're going to take it the way everyone else took it, including the way Americans took it in the American Revolution. And that same co-founder told a federal registrar, if one of our candidates get gets touched, we're going to take care of the murderer ourselves. Things didn't work out quite as they hoped, but probably as they expected. All seven of their black candidates were defeated due to illegal ballot stuffing, but the push, this Lones County push, had charted a new course for black activists who wanted to begin to de-emphasize white participation in these protests and sit-ins and de-emphasize accommodation with white institutions like the Democratic Party and instead just focus on working directly to put black people in power, in, in positions of political power, 
And so Stokely Carmichael arrives to that hospital in Memphis to visit James Meredith and Martin Luther King Jr. as the militant leader of SNCC at this point and, and its legions of young radical activists. He confidently enters the room and strides up to Meredith's bed and takes his hand and expresses sympathy and gratitude on, on behalf of himself and, and, and his organization. And after a brief conversation, it's decided that Meredith should get some rest. And Stokely Carmichael and Martin Luther King and Floyd McKissick, um, who I didn't mention, the National Director of Corps, Congress of Racial Equality, who was there uh, at the time, they met afterwards and decided that the march would continue under the joint sponsorship of CORE, SNCC, and Dr. King's SCLC, and that they would put out a national call to other civil rights organizations and individuals to come join them. So they wasted no time. Just one hour after leaving the hospital, after quickly setting up a headquarters at a Memphis church, King leads a group packed into four cars to the exact spot on the highway where Meredith had been shot, and they got out, and they resumed the march, started walking under the oppressive heat and humidity of a Mississippi June. Others began arriving. Lots of young activists start arriving. It quickly becomes clear that the younger folks have very different ideas from King about what this march should be about. From King's recounting of this march against fear, quote, I'm not for that nonviolent stuff anymore, shouted one of the younger activists. If one of these damn white Mississippi crackers touches me, I'm going to knock the hell out of him, shouted another. Later on, a discussion of the composition of the march came up. This should be an all-black march, said one marcher. We don't need any more white phonies and liberals invading our movement. This is our march, end quote. So this goes on. And during a brief rest that afternoon, it's really hot out. The activists with Dr. King try to keep up everybody's spirits by getting everyone to sing along with the civil rights anthem, We Shall Overcome. And they sing with their usual enthusiasm, but uh, many went silent when they reached the lines, We shall overcome. Black and white together. They skipped that part. They didn't want to sing it. And later, when King asked some of those marchers why they refused to sing that verse, he was told, this is a new day. We don't sing those words anymore. In fact, the whole song should be discarded. Not we shall overcome, but we shall overrun. Quote, At the end of the march that first day, we all went back to Memphis and spent the night in a Negro motel, since we had not yet secured the tents that would serve as shelter each of the following nights on our journey. The discussions continued at the motel. I decided that I would plead patiently with my brothers to remain true to the time-honored principles of our movement. I began with a plea for nonviolence. This immediately aroused some of our friends from the deacons for defense, who contended that self-defense was essential, and that therefore nonviolence should not be a prerequisite for participation in the march. They were joined in this view by some of the activists from CORE and SNCC. I tried to make it clear that besides opposing violence on principle, I could imagine nothing more impractical and disastrous than for any of us, through misguided judgment, to precipitate a violent confrontation in Mississippi. We had neither the resources nor the techniques to win. Furthermore, I asserted, many Mississippi whites from the government on down would enjoy nothing more than for us to turn to violence in order to use this as an excuse to wipe out scores of Negroes in and out of the march. Finally, I contended that the debate over the question of self-defense was unnecessary since few people suggested that Negroes should not defend themselves as individuals when attacked. The question was not whether one should use a gun when his home was attacked, but whether it was tactically wise to use a gun while participating in an organized demonstration. If they lowered the banner of nonviolence, I said, 
Mississippi injustice would not be exposed and the moral issues would be obscured. Next, the question of participation of whites was raised. Stokely Carmichael contended that the inclusion of whites should be de-emphasized and that the dominant appeal should be made for black participation. Others in the room agreed. As I listened to Stokely, I thought about the years that we had worked together in communities all across the South and how joyously we had then welcomed and accepted our white allies in the movement. What accounted for this reversal in Stokely's philosophy? Like life, racial understanding is not something that we find, but something that we must create. The ability of Negroes and whites to work together, to understand each other, will not be found ready-made. It must be created by the fact of content, contact. Along these lines, I implored everyone in the room to see the morality of making the march completely interracial. Consciences must be enlisted in our movement, I said, not merely racial groups. I reminded them of the dedicated whites who had suffered, bled, and died in the cause of racial justice, and suggested that to reject white participation now would be a shameful repudiation of all for which they had sacrificed, end quote. In defense of these principles, Dr. King was forced to pull from the bottom of his well of authority at this point and gave everybody in the room an ultimatum, quote, Finally, I said that the formidable foe we now face demanded more unity than ever before, and that I would stretch every point to maintain this unity, but that I could not in good conscience agree to continue my personal involvement or that of the SELC in the march if it were not publicly affirmed that it was based on nonviolence and the participation of both black and white. After a few more minutes of discussion, Floyd and Stokely agreed that we could unite around these principles as far as the march was concerned. The next morning, we had a joint press conference affirming that the march was nonviolent and that whites were welcomed, end quote. But despite the affirmation, the hostile attitude of the SNCC activists and the Deacons for Defense and armed Louisiana group brought in by Stokely Carmichael for security, who followed the philosophy of Robert F. Williams, it made for a very uncomfortable environment for whites, so few of them showed up and none of them stuck around. As the days passed, debates and discussions continued. King and Carmichael gave competing speeches around campfires at night, King trying in vain to calm the waters while Carmichael was trying to fire up his troops. When King's supporters attempted to sing We Shall Overcome, Carmichael's followers sang over them with their new version of We Shall Overrun. Stokely Carmichael was growing very impatient to reach familiar SNCC territory in Mississippi, and he pushed the pace to the city of Greenwood. The, the evening that they arrived... Stokely was arrested for pitching his tent at a local high school. His people made bail, and he stormed out of the jail enraged, making his way to the city park where a huge mass meeting was in progress. People there knew that Stokely Carmichael had been arrested, and so when he arrived, King watches as the crowd parts, and Stokely walks up and leaps up on top of a tractor trailer and launches an attack on the Mississippi justice system to a raucous crowd of marchers and local black residents who had gathered. Brian Burrow writes about what happened next, one of those moments on which events pivot quote stokely shot a fist into the air this is the 27th time that i've been arrested he announced and i ain't going to jail no more the only way we're going to stop them white men from whooping us is to take over we've been saying freedom for six years and we ain't got nothing what we're going to start saying now is black power black power the crowd roared Another activist, Willie Ricks, jumped atop the tractor trailer and joined Carmichael. What do you want? Ricks hollered. Black power! What do we want? 
Black power. Black power. For the first time, the rising tide of black anger not only had a new face in Stokely Carmichael, but a name. Black power. Carmichael's speech electrified the nation. The NAACP's Roy Wilkins called the term the father of hatred and the mother of violence. In a speech the very next night in Greenwood, King himself told his audience, some people are telling us to be like our oppressor, who has the history of using Molotov cocktails, who has a history of dropping the atomic bomb, who has a history of lynching Negroes. Now people are telling me to stoop down to that level. I'm sick and tired of violence. But it was too late. The movement of white freedom riders and speeches by Dr. King was ending. In its place, a new movement was taking shape. But exactly what it would look like, no one could say. Carmichael himself, in a television appearance on Face the Nation and in later speeches, struggled to define black power. To him, it appeared to mean a grasp for economic and political power by a movement run by blacks and only blacks. Yet, his use of incendiary language, when you talk about black power, you talk about bringing this nation to its knees, only emboldened those whose vision of power meant burning, rioting, and worse. White America certainly had no difficulty defining black power. In a jarring juxtaposition, a life cover that summer featured a tearful Elizabeth Taylor in an unrelated story beneath the headline, Plot to Get Whitey, Red Hot Young Negroes Plan a Ghetto War. The story, focusing on a fringe militant group inspired by Robert Williams, noted, In secret recesses of any ghetto in the U.S., there are dozens and hundreds of black men working resolutely toward an Armageddon in which Whitey is either to be destroyed or forced to his knees, end quote. Very nice to see Life magazine doing its part to settle things down. That summer, 1966, there were race riots in 20 cities. It was in August, two months after Stokely Carmichael gave his Black Power speech in Greenwood, that Martin Luther King was beaten back in his demoralizing rally in Marquette Park in Chicago. Black Power was the word in the summer of 1966, but as Burroughs said, despite being on everybody's lips, what the term meant was still an open question. They wouldn't have to wait past October of that year to find out. And the answer wouldn't come from the Deep South or Harlem or Chicago, but from all the way out west in Oakland, California. And as Burrow writes, it came clad in sleek black leather jackets, black berets, and cocked shotguns with the emergence of a new group who would translate the bold words of black power into organization and action and transforming the nascent revolutionary movement. They called themselves the Black Panthers. It began with two community college students named Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale. Just a few of their friends and a very simple but very bold idea. Newton and Seale were both from working class black families who had come from the South when they were kids. The two men were very different, but they complemented each other very well. Huey Newton was tall light-skinned, usually somewhat soft-spoken and intellectual, although he he could be violent and he liked to fight. Uh, He was the youngest of seven children. Bobby Seale was the oldest of three children. He was seven years older than Newton with a stockier build. Seale was a natural organizer who was ready to put Newton's visions into action. Newton had been a minor delinquent by his early, early teenage years, and he was partly paying for his college tuition in Oakland by burglarizing homes, Seal had joined the Air Force, but he was thrown out with a dishonorable discharge, after which he joined a small group called the Revolutionary Action Movement, which incidentally was the group that that Incendiary Life magazine article I mentioned a second ago was about. 
And by the time they met and became friends, both were fully absorbed in the black radical movement. Burrow writes, quote, both were smitten by the entire canon of revolutionary literature circa 1966, especially Robert F. Williams' Negroes with Guns, Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, and anything written by Che Guevara. They read everything Mao wrote. But their idol was Malcolm, whose every word they treated as scripture. Newton later called the Panthers a living testament to Malcolm's life work, end quote. So after Stokely Carmichael's Black Power speech lights fires on campuses across the country in the fall of 66, the two friends decide to start their own group to protest police brutality, but with a little twist, a little something extra. Not content to protest and hope for reform, and following the self-defense philosophy of Williams and Malcolm X, they plan to mount armed patrols to roll through black neighborhoods in Oakland to keep watch on the police. So they take this idea to some of their fellow students on the campus's Seoul Student Advisory Council, and they were told it was impractical. Uh, even Bobby Seale's friends in the Revolutionary Action Movement said it was suicidal and rejected it. But they were determined, and so that fall, they hold themselves up in one of the government-run community organizing centers described by Tom Wolfe and Mao Mowing the Flat Catchers, and the two devised a 10-point program as the starting point for their new group. Some of the demands in the 10-point program were perfectly reasonable. Others were not so reasonable, unless you shared their perspective that blacks in America were a captive population of colonial subjects, which is how they saw it. Their demand, for example, that all blacks held in jails or prisons be released sounds unreasonable. Uh, but if, while under French occupation, for example, the Vietnamese revolutionaries had demanded the release of all Vietnamese captives held in French prisons... That demand appears maybe in a little bit different light. Well, that's how they saw things. Although that didn't mean that they would shy away from appealing to the laws and principles of the United States, such as the ninth demand on the list, uh, that since the U.S. Constitution requires that criminal defendants be judged by a jury of their peers, blacks should only be subject to trials with all black juries. And it's just that's not just opportunism. Uh, there's not a contradiction in their perspective here, not really. You know, they were saying to white America, to America as a whole, Look, we are not you, you are not us, but as long as we are here living as subjects under your government, we demand the rights accorded to us under your system on pain of hypocrisy and, and of legitimizing whatever actions we take in our own defense. They demanded an exemption of blacks from all military service. And this was actually an idea that was picking up steam among radicals. You know, from, the, from their perspective, American blacks were victims of colonialism. Europeans had taken over North America, exterminated its native population, and imported Africans to work the fields. And now, centuries later, the descendants of those slaves were kept in second-class status by an increasingly militarized police force while being drafted by force in disproportionate numbers to go kill victims of French colonialism, the Vietnamese. I think most people can see something pretty dark about drafting Native Americans to fight in a foreign war. You know, we come over here, take all the land, end their way of life, kill most of them off, confine the survivors to reservations, and then we force them under threat of imprisonment to go overseas to fight Vietnamese people. Like, there's something dark in there. Native Americans are not exempt from the draft, by the way. Um, but maybe you'd say that's different, because Native Americans do have reservations, and their tribes have a recognized semi-autonomy of a sort, while black Americans are simply citizens with the same rights and obligations accorded to everyone else. Well, you go back to the mid-1960s, 
And the first part of that equation, the part about rights, is a pretty hard goddamn sell. I mean, I mean, if you don't have that perspective, even if you recognize that the equal rights part hasn't been achieved, uh, but, but you have the view that black Americans are just Americans like everyone else, and making that a reality, the equal rights part was at least a goal, and that exempting them from the obligations of citizenship would subvert that goal of integration by, again, carving them out into a separate society within a society approved now with the stamp of official policy, then a demand like this one by the Panthers sounds regressive and impossible and dangerous. But the Panthers and those who would end up following them, they had had enough of integration. Armed with their 10-point program that October, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, having named themselves the party's leader and minister of defense, respectively, they go out and they start looking for recruits. In only seven months, they would take the Black Panthers from 10 points on a piece of paper to the front pages of national newspapers, and they would seize the torch of black radical liberation from the preachers and marchers and student activists who had carried it since the 1950s. 100 days into the party's existence, just a little over three months, the Panthers were made up of only Newton, Seal, and about a dozen friends. They bought guns. They opened up a storefront office headquarters uh, in Oakland, and in January 1967, they start their patrols. I mean, this is, a, this is a crazy thing to do, if you really think about it. The bravado of what they're doing is, is remarkable. When you go back, especially think back to, to, to what the environment was like when they were doing this. I mean, it would be a dangerous thing to do today. It was almost ridiculously dangerous back then. Armed with loaded weapons, they would pile into cars and cruise Oakland ghettos until they saw a black person stopped by the police. They would stop the car and get out with their guns drawn, not pointing them, but holding them. And then they would begin to advise the black citizen of his rights and the officer of their right to bear arms. And cops didn't know what to make of this. You know, you're like maybe one or two cops. Maybe you're by yourself. Maybe you have one partner. The car pulls up and four or five or six people jump out with guns and start talking like this. And they didn't know what to make of it. Um, and so word begins to spread about these crazy young guys confronting the cops with guns. But most people still hadn't seen or interacted with them before two confrontations in February of 67. It's just a month after they started their patrols. Burrow describes these incidents. Quote, An Oakland policeman stopped Newton's car. Seal and others were with him. At first, Newton politely showed his driver's license and answered the officer's questions. He had his M1 rifle in clear view. Seal his 9mm. In short order, three more patrol cars arrived. A crowd began to form. Up and down the street, people poked their heads from apartment windows. When an officer asked to see the guns, Newton refused. Get away from the car, Newton said. We don't want you around the car, and that's all there is to it. Who in the hell do you think you are, the officer demanded. Who in the hell do you think you are, Newton replied. At that point, Newton emerged from the car and loudly chambered a round in his rifle. When police tried to shoo away the growing crowd, Newton shouted for everyone to stay put that they were within their rights to observe what was happening on a public street. What are you going to do with that gun? An officer asked. What are you going to do with your gun? Newton replied. Because if you shoot at me or if you try to take this gun, I'm going to shoot back at you, swine. The byplay continued like this for several long minutes. Each time Newton challenged the police, onlookers would clap and yell, You know where it's at or dig it. Newton, it was clear, was acting out the fantasy of every black youth on the street. And amazingly, 
he got away with it. The police retired without making any arrests. Within days, word of these brazen new panthers spread from Oakland across the Bay Area. The turning point came on February 21, 1967. Another of the new panther groups, this one based in San Francisco, had, invi had invited Malcolm's widow, Betty Shabazz, to announce the formation of a Bay Area chapter of Malcolm's OAAU on the anniversary of his death. Because the San Francisco Panthers disdained weaponry, they invited the Oakland Panthers to provide security. Newton, Seal, and their new recruits, all armed, escorted Shabazz from the airport to the offices of the radical magazine Ramparts, where she gave an interview. They emerged afterward into a phalanx of newspapermen, television cameras, and police. Shabazz had asked that her picture not be taken. When one photographer refused to lower his camera, Newton punched him. Several policemen raised their guns. When a few Panthers turned their backs to watch Shabazz emerge from the building, Newton snapped, Don't turn your back on these back-shooting motherfuckers! He chambered around into his shotgun. A crowd formed. Both Rampart's editors and policemen raised their hands and told everyone to cool it. But when one officer refused, Newton barked, Don't point that gun at me! When the officer still refused, he shouted, Okay, you big fat racist pig, draw your gun! Draw it, you cowardly dog, I'm waiting! The officer lowered his weapon, diffusing the situation, but the incident was caught on television cameras and made a powerful impact when it aired. This was something entirely new to California and soon to the rest of the country. Strong, proud, black men with guns facing down startled white policemen. This, it appeared, was what black power would mean in the streets. Word of Huey Newton and these fearless new Black Panthers spread like a windswept fog. In the next few weeks, the party attracted hundreds of new recruits, some of them gang members and ex-convicts. Newton made clear that the Panthers wanted the toughest street fighters he could find, and he got them. End quote. And so after these two very highly publicized confrontations and, and then complaints from the police, the political authorities get involved. California legislators introduce a bill to ban the public holding of loaded weapons. And even then, the Panthers didn't back down. On May 2nd, 1967, Bobby Seale leads over 20 armed Black Panthers wearing their uniforms of black leather and berets to the state capitol building in Sacramento. A group of school children is assembled on a nearby lawn where they're about to hear a talk from Governor Ronald Reagan at the time. And there was a news crew present to film that event. And instead, they turned to film the events developing on the Capitol steps. Bobby Seale and his group of 20-something armed Panthers get stopped by security at the entrance to the Capitol building. He's wearing a loaded forty-five on his belt. The Panthers arrayed around him have shotguns, rifles, handguns. And Seal demands to know where the assembly's meeting because the, the legisla legislature's in session right now. And someone yelled that the observation area was upstairs, so Seal and the Panthers push past the guards with their loaded weapons and barge into the packed assembly chamber while the session is going on. The whole place goes nuts, and every guard in the area assembles and begins pushing the Panthers out of the room. Some of them attempted to grab the Panthers' guns, but they struggled with the cops and they wouldn't give them up. Finally, they went out of their own accord, and outside, Steele stood before, or Seal rather, stands before a crowd of reporters and reads a statement against the gun control legislation and then just launches into a tirade against the racism and brutality of the terrorist police around the country. This is all on camera. The footage of armed, uniformed black men defiantly marching in and out of the Capitol is soon everywhere, and it just sends shockwaves around the country. 
And nobody had ever seen anything like this or conceived of anything like this. The rise of the Panthers is coming right at a time when SNCC is beginning to fall apart. Its radicalization under Stokely Carmichael had alienated its white liberal supporters, and by early 1967, funding for the group is drying up. That alliance between black and white activists that had, had, had formed up at Greensboro and had carried you know, through the, the freedom rides and the voter registration drives, all the early civil rights movements, signature events, it was, it was breaking apart, and, and it really suffered a killing blow early in the summer of 1967 after the Israeli-Arab Six-Day War. Black power had globalized the civil rights movement, identifying the struggle with, for, uh, of American blacks with the struggle of oppressed people around the world. And that move and the growing resentment and division, both political and interpersonal, uh, between leaders of the black power movement and the mostly Jewish white activists contributed to a shift within the movement to seeing Israel not as an inspiration as, as they had previously, that's how Martin Luther King would speak of it, but as another oppressor colonial state, a beachhead for Western imperialism in the Muslim world. Martin Luther King was a strong supporter of Israel. The third worldist identitarians leading the black power movement declared Israel anathema. Michael Foyer, in a 1992 essay for his spree on the split that developed in the summer of 67, remembers, quote, When the National Convention on New Politics met in Chicago's Palmer House over the 1967 Labor Day weekend, it was the new left's last-ditch attempt to mend its inner divisions and settle on a single platform for the 1968 presidential election. Many of the civil rights veterans and anti-Vietnam War activists who took part were still hoping that the new left would unite behind a Martin Luther King, Benjamin Spock ticket. Instead, the events that unfolded signaled the end of an era. Black power was at its peak. Gathered in a black caucus, the black power delegates at the conference demanded 50% of the votes, although they accounted for less than 20% of the activists in attendance. The delegates of the student movement, the radicalized Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, and the mostly white members of the Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, were particularly intimidated by the true radicalism of Malcolm X's political offspring and quickly granted their request. Yet this easy victory for black power did little to alleviate the tension. In fact, sensing the feelings of guilt or even self-hatred that had prompted the white student's decision, the black delegates immediately insisted that one of the first acts of the conference to be, be to adopt a resolution condemning Zionist imperialism. Such a motion had little bearing on the purpose of the gathering, but everybody knew that a majority of the student delegates were Jewish. The draft resolution was an open provocation, but the conventioners approved it instantly. As one can imagine, this conciliatory gesture, far from restoring confidence, only further embittered participants from all factions and convinced them that the coalition that had led the civil rights struggle had simply ceased to exist. At the same time, stimulated by the initial mood of the proceedings, some of the more radical women, who had, be who had recently begun to set their own priorities within the new left, asked to be given 51% of the votes on the grounds that they too were victims of a specific oppression and represented 51% of the total population. Their motion wasn't even rejected. The organizers simply refused to put it on the agenda, arguing that the conference had been called to discuss far more serious issues than women's liberation. So in addition to the irreversible split between the more radical black groups and the student movement, the former busy spearheading the ghetto uprisings, the latter completely absorbed in the fight against the Vietnam War, the convention witnessed the secession of women who had grown tired of the all-pervasive male condescension. 
especially its embodiment within SDS, end quote. You know, this is a movement that's coming apart, as probably all movements based on identity politics and competing claims of victimhood must eventually do. Earlier that year, making the black-white split in the student movement official, Stokely Carmichael had expelled all the whites from SNCC before abruptly resigning his position as chairman. You know, this is an organization where white activists had been had been getting beaten right along with black activists on the freedom rides and stuff. And so it was really the end of an era for this organization and, and pretty close to the end of the organization as a whole. The organization was soon renamed from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to the Student National Coordinating Committee, taking out nonviolent, just ending any pretense of the organization's dedication to nonviolent tactics. Carmichael was soon replaced as SNCC chairman by an extremely militant 23-year-old who went by the name H. Rap Brown. The passing of the torch from Stokely Carmichael to Rap Brown reflected this headlong dive into extremism of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. In July, during a riot in Cambridge, Maryland, Brown mounted the hood of a car to deliver a speech. This is at a time when ghettos across the country are burning, and Brown declares, This ain't no riot, brother. This is a rebellion. And we got 400 years of reasons to tear this town apart. You don't have to be a big group to do it, brothers. In a town this size, three men can burn it down. This is what they call guerrilla warfare. Rat Brown went on as a New York Times reporter recorded the speech. Don't love the white man to death. Shoot him to death. You better get yourself some guns. I know who my enemy is and I know how to kill him. When I get mad... I'm going out and look for a honky and I'm going to take out 400 years worth of dues on him. So all summer, Rat Brown, as the leader of SNCC at this point, tours, giving incendiary speeches, doing his best to escalate the violence as race riots are breaking out in cities across the country. In Jersey City, he's there, he calls on blacks to rise up and wage guerrilla war on the honky white man. As stores and businesses are are being looted uh, during a riot in Washington, D.C., Brown tells a rowdy crowd, black people have been looting. I say there should be more shooting than looting. So if you loot, loot a gun store. And in Queens, he announces that the violence that summer of 67 was a dress rehearsal for revolution and warned President Lyndon Johnson that if you play Nazis with us, we ain't going to play Jews. And so these, this is all widely reported. I mean, like he's, again, the leader of a major civil rights organization, nationally known organization. His, his provocations and the, the, the violent rhetoric was not without consequences. Between 64 and 69, attacks on police, uh, 1964 and 1969, attacks on policemen in Los Angeles increased 500%. Between 67 and 69 in New Jersey, they increased by 41%. This was going on across the country. And we're not just talking about black men becoming more bold and resisting arrest by abusive cops, but a steady increase in unprovoked attacks and ambushes. During the summer of 67, race riots would occur in over 100 American cities. The most violent and shocking were in Newark, New Jersey and Detroit, Michigan. In both of those cities, the riots escalated from random looting and burning and mob violence and so forth into armed gangs engaging in pitch battles with, with law enforcement, sometimes with, with National Guardsmen. This was something altogether new. You know, very different. It was very alarming, as you can imagine, to leaders at every level at a time when you have groups like the Panthers and SNCC, as it had developed under Rap Brown, advocating the kind of militancy they were. 
you know, this is just a couple months after after you have Black Panthers on camera on national news marching up in, in into the Capitol building in, in California in Sacramento. You know, so law enforcement politi- political leaders, especially J. Edgar Hoover's FBI, they saw what was happening as possibly the beginning of a like a full scale insurgency, at least in potential, if something wasn't done to nip it in the bud. In the Newark riots, twenty six people were killed, nearly a thousand were injured. Tens of millions of dollars in property damage just gutted the remains of an already crumbling black ghetto, drove out most of the remaining businesses that had existed there. But it was in Detroit that authorities got a taste of what a world might be like if people like Rap Brown really got their way. In addition to rioters and looters, there were reports of snipers taking shots at police from buildings in several neighborhoods. There were organized groups armed with rifles and handguns engaging in, 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 in pitch battles, again, with police and National Guardsmen, until finally, at the request of the governor, the federal government brought in the 82nd and 101st Army Airborne Divisions to put down what was being called a domestic insurrection. It was completely out of control. Dozens of people were killed, and, and whole swaths of the city were destroyed. It was in the summer of 1967 that the movement really took a turn when street-level racial politics and criminal activity and, and, and just other kinds of, 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 of hardcore violent militancy began to meld in ways that often made it hard to distinguish them. You had all of a sudden a lot of very violent and destructive people coming into the movement whose relationship to the cause very often didn't extend much beyond the rage that they brought to the table, the rage that they harbored and how miserable their lives were and enjoyed the opportunity to strike back at the forces that they blamed for it. Huey Newton and Bobby Seale's desire to get the toughest, baddest dudes they could find into the Black Panthers meant that as the organization opened chapters in cities all over the country, there was very little vetting of new members. Frequently, chapters were full of violent criminals along the spectrum of reform all the way from not at all to uh, you know getting there uh, often they used the panthers community reputation as cover for drug dealing and extortion rackets there wasn't a lot of centralized control others were just opportunists or they were fanatics looking for action and one man who was a combination of both those qualities was present at the may 1967 showdown outside ramparts magazine uh, during the interview with Betty Shabazz. His name was Eldridge Cleaver, and he was working as an editor at Ramparts at the time and would eventually do more than any other single individual to destroy the Black Panthers and, and help give rise to the bloody run of black radical terrorism that would take dozens of lives in the 1970s. Eldridge Cleaver was tall, bearded, very strongly built. Um, Cleaver became, for many, kind of emblematic of what the, the Panthers were really about. Eldridge Cleaver thought of himself as an intellectual, and it was him who would take the organization out of the ghettos by building bridges to radical, chic, white liberals who wanted to crowd around the warmth of these authentic black revolutionaries. Like Newton and Seal, he was another Southern transplant, and like Newton, he spent his teenage years as a petty criminal. It was during a stint in prison that he began to read radical literature, communist literature, and it came to him that his crimes... Uh, were not indications of his own flawed character, but were in fact legitimate acts of rebellion against a society that had oppressed him. And this revelation of his applied not only to his career as a thief, but even to the many rapes that had landed him in prison. 
He explains in his book Soul on Ice, quote, I became a rapist. To refine my technique in modus operandi, I started out by practicing on black girls in the ghetto, in the black ghetto where dark and vicious deeds appear not as aberrations or deviations from the norm, but as part of the sufficiency of the evil of the day. And when I considered myself smooth enough, I crossed the tracks and sought out white prey. I did this consciously, deliberately, willfully, methodically. Rape was an insurrectionary act. It delighted me that I was defying and trampling upon the white man's law, upon his system of values, and that I was defiling his women. And this point, I believe, was the most satisfying to me, because I was very resentful over the historical fact of how the white man has used the black woman. I felt I was getting revenge. End quote. In a pattern that would repeat itself many, many times over the next decade and a half or so, as white radicals became increasingly infatuated with black convicts, Cleaver wrote a letter to a Jewish attorney in the Bay Area named Beverly Axelrod, who agreed to take on his case. They corresponded frequently, and she began funneling some of the letters he would write her to Ramparts Magazine for publication to build his profile as a sympathetic figure and so forth. And eventually the two began having sex, and she was able to secure his release in December 1966, although she was presumably disappointed when he later admitted to playing her in order to string her along and get her to stay on his case. Well, Ramparts had promised to hire Eldridge Cleaver once he was out of prison, and they kept their word. Burrow writes, quote, At Ramparts, Cleaver became an instant celebrity, by far the most prominent black radical in the Bay Area. Angry, sometimes funny, and frequently sexual, his, leader, his letters and articles portrayed Cleaver as a kind of cross between Malcolm and Barry White, an angry, charismatic lover man with his own revolutionary spin on hoary black stereotypes. Like Huey Newton, he argued that the most genuine revolutionaries were those who were the most oppressed, black prison inmates and gangbangers, an idea that appealed strongly to white radicals yearning for a taste of black authenticity. Unlike Stokely Carmichael, Cleaver embraced white radicals who adored him. They flocked to Black House, a kind of black power salon Cleaver co-founded where he held court with every movement figure who visited San Francisco. After the confrontation outside Ramparts, Cleaver signed on as the Panthers' information minister, editor of the party's weekly newspaper, The Black Panther, and, in the public's mind at least, Newton's intellectual equal. I would dispute that uh, strongly. But while the Newton-Cleaver marriage gave the Panthers instant legitimacy in radical white circles, it introduced an ideological rift that would eventually split the party. Newton and Seal were using armed self-defense as a recruiting tool, a way to lure members to man the education, welfare, and free breakfast programs the Panthers were putting into place. For all their tough talk, they had no intention of actually hunting policemen. Cleaver did. He wanted the bloody fight Malcolm and Rap Brown foresaw. A genuine revolution, Vietnam-style guerrilla warfare in America. Many found this hard to take seriously, but Cleaver was serious, end quote. Cleaver was serious, but he was also crazy. I said that he was a mix of an opportunist and a fanatic, and as you can probably tell from my tone of voice as I'm describing, I'm not a fan. Uh, his fanaticism will become apparent soon enough. His opportunism only becomes evident over the course of many years when after... He plays his leading role in collapsing the Black Panthers into death and obscurity. He tries on several new roles, including, at various times, a fundamentalist Christian, a Mooney, a Mormon, 
uh, fashion designer whose signature piece was a pair of pants featuring a cod piece. And finally, during the Reagan years, an outspoken Republican. <laughs> the incident that gave him the control he needed to bring the Panthers down um, occurred about a year after Newton and Seal had founded the party and just five months after Cleaver became involved with it. I'll quote one more time from Burrow, whose work I've obviously drawn on heavily here because uh, this episode is already a beast, and if I restrict myself to an extended quote, there's less of a chance I'll end up on another one of my tangents. So here we go. Quote, Early on the morning of October 28, 1967, Newton, who by his own estimate had already been stopped by the police 50 or more times, was flagged down by an Oakland patrol car. A gunfight ensued. Newton walked away with at least one bullet hole in his abdomen. Two officers were badly wounded. One died. When Newton limped into an emergency room, he was arrested. He would not go free for three years. The prosecution of Huey Newton would be one of the decade's centerpiece events, providing a rallying cry, free Huey, for a generation of black power advocates, drawing hundreds of recruits to the party and mobilizing thousands more to protest. But the impact on the Panthers was ultimately devastating. The absence of both Newton and Bobby Seale who was serving a six-month sentence for his role in the confrontation on the Capitol steps, and who, the next year, by the way, would be on trial for the torture murder of a police informant, created a leadership vacuum that was filled by Eldridge Cleaver. It was under Cleaver that the Panthers would drastically escalate their language of violence and insurrection to levels never before heard in America. The audacity of this rhetoric, even from a vantage point of decades, is shocking. It was the Panther newspaper, the Black Panther, that coined the phrase, Off the Pig. Under Cleaver, the Panthers openly called for the murder of policemen, supplying tips on ambush tactics and ways to build bombs. The only good pig, quipped Michael Tabor, a New York Panther, is a dead pig. The Panther chief of staff, David Hilliard, was arrested after telling a crowd in San Francisco, We will kill Richard Nixon. When Cleaver ran for president in 1968, he said of the White House, we will burn the motherfucker down. Another Panther was quoted as saying, we need black FBI agents to assassinate J. Edgar Hoover, and nigger CIA agents should kidnap the Rockefellers and the Kennedys. End quote. You know, we open this episode, it, it, we've come far enough at this point that it's hard to even reach back to, but we open this episode with Martin Luther King Jr. leading his followers in the Montgomery bus boycott using Christian rhetoric and calling upon Gandhi to inspire his people to hold fast to love and nonviolence, even as he was being threatened and cursed and, and saw his house bombed. He understood the Black Power movement. He was watching all this happen very closely and, and was, was, was right adjacent to it. He knew where it came from and why, and he saw how pathological and dangerous it was when belligerence and defiance became ends in themselves. When he earlier preached against the corrupting influence of resentment and hatred, he did so because he knew that once the process of reciprocal animus and violence begins, his movement and many of his people would come to embrace a negative identity defined by what it opposed, defined by its anti-whiteness and its opposition to authority of any kind. Quote, Out of the soil of slavery came the psychological roots of the black power cry, Anyone familiar with the black power movement recognizes that defiance of white authority and white power is a constant thing. Underneath the legitimate concern that the Negro break away from unconditional submission and thereby assert his own selfhood, 
the defiance almost becomes a kind of taunt, end quote. But black power advocates, they thought that he was naive. And they were becoming more open and confident in saying so. And in some ways, maybe he was naive. He argued with Stokely Carmichael against using the term black power by pointing out that other groups who had been previously marginalized, you know, the Jews, the Irish, they had made their way to equality by organizing politically and economically. They hadn't gone around calling for Jewish power or Irish power. And if they had, it's likely that they wouldn't have achieved equality as quickly as they had. But at the same time, the goal of Jews and Irish and other European immigrants could be could, could credibly be assimilation into the general white population, a goal which was simply not available to blacks. Of all the populations that became a part of the American experiment, no group was excluded from assimilation so systematically at the community and individual level as America's former slave population. And what could an internal proletariat without hope for assimilation, true assimilation, do but organize and mobilize in a way that allowed it to exercise hard political power. And there was a more more basic level to it. The people who marched with King and Birmingham in those original bus boycotts a decade back, again, it's hard to believe this only a decade ago, because the, the, the movement and, and the just everything has changed so much. These were mostly older, church-going, southern black people. Older people. I don't mean elderly. I mean people older than their 20s. You know, they were the ones who mostly used the buses, and so they were the ones mostly participating in the boycott. By the mid and late 60s, we're talking about young people who lacked the discipline and patience for mistreatment that their elders had cultivated through years of living under Jim Crow. They watched the elders march, and they respected them for it, but when they saw them getting beat on, you know, if you're an 18-year-old guy watching that happen, it is just about impossible not to cheer when somebody hits back. And when the calls come for new recruits, that 18-year-old is likely to be fired up and join with the people hitting back, not with the ones standing around to get beat on. And, and he even feels, you know, it's not just rage. He, he even feels like he's doing what someone his age ought to be doing, playing his proper role, protecting and hitting back on behalf of the older marchers who are doing their part and playing their role by stoically enduring the abuse. After years of racial conflict and police repression, assassinations and and after that summer of fire and blood in 1967, Martin Luther King's interviews and speeches are often less inspiring than they are pleading and, and occasionally despondent. He gave an interview, a long, an extended interview to NBC News you can find on, um, uh, on, on YouTube still. And uh, he, he's, he's clearly worried, um, dejected. He has given up hope, but uh, you know, at one point he says that in many ways his dream had turned into a nightmare. In the age of Rat Brown and Eldridge Cleaver, his words often sound like some, and I don't mean any disrespect to the man, but they come across in some ways as like some boring old Republican senator today calling for bipartisan civility in the age of Donald Trump. And people are just like, what are you talking about? Like, your day is past, old man. And again, I'm not, this was the flavor of the time, I'm not disrespecting the man. By the 10th annual conference of his Southern Christian Leadership, uh, conference, which should have been a celebration, ten years of of of, of marches and and victories and the civil rights legislation and, and all of these things that, in, in many ways, did represent real progress. And this tenth anniversary of the founding of 
their organization should have been a celebration there in August 1967. Um, but despite the great respect in which he's still held by everyone, including the radicals and their supporters, his attempts to dissuade people uh, in his in his address that he delivers there from the Black Power Movement, it, it might as well have been a speech delivered to himself. Quote, We've had it mixed up in this country, and this has led Negro Americans in the past to seek their goals through love and moral suasion devoid of power, and white Americans to seek their goals through power devoid of love and conscience. It is leading a few extremists today to advocate for Negroes the same destructive and conscienceless power that they have justly abhorred in whites, end quote. That's, you know, I mean, that's great, but Martin Luther King is fighting for lost ground at this point as rage and paranoia are bubbling up from the inner cities and from college campuses as well. In contrast, his elevated calls to conscience to the simple lines of the young black poet Nikki Giovanni from this period. And Giovanni is not some fringe character. She's one of the world's best-known African-American poets, a recipient of the NAACP's Image Award. And her poem from this time reads, Nigger, can you kill? Can you kill? Can a nigger kill? Can a nigger kill a honky? Can you splatter their brains in the street? Can you kill them? Learn to kill niggers. Learn to be black men. You know, this is a movement and a country that is coming apart at the seams when you hear something like that. In 1967, it was just a dim prelude to what 1968 would bring. In the spring of that presidential election year, as the Vietnam War launched into its psychotic phase, everyone was waiting to see if the summer was going to see a recreation of the previous year's urban racial war zones. On April 4th, in Memphis, Tennessee, when he was in town to aid sanitation workers striking for better pay and working conditions, an assassin's bullet ripped through the body of Martin Luther King. He died at St. Joseph's Hospital a short time later, and America just exploded. Savage riots broke out in 120 cities. Stokely Carmichael declared that white America had declared open war on blacks and called for retaliation. Dozens were killed, thousands were wounded, tens of thousands were arrested, and neighborhoods, black neighborhoods in cities across the country fell into declines from which many of them still have not recovered to this day. Two days after King's death, Eldridge Cleaver and several other Panthers packed into a few cars and went looking for Oakland police to murder. Their plans for ambush went awry when a cop car pulled up while Cleaver was out of his vehicle urinating and his companions jumped out of their cars and just started unloading on the police. Taking cover in a nearby basement, Cleaver and one other panther engaged in a 90-minute gun battle with the cops. When everything is said and done, his partner's dead, shot six times, and Cleaver surrenders. Out on bail, Cleaver skipped the country and eventually makes his way to Algeria by way of Cuba, where he's set up by the revolutionary government there in Algeria with a Panther headquarters to govern the organization from exile. You know, uh, as the stories of Cleaver, not some street soldier, but the Panther's leader, hunting down cops to avenge the killing of Martin Luther King, the stories brought thousands more young, angry recruits into the party. And with stories like that, you're going to attract a certain type. In the absence of strong leadership with Newton, Seal, and now Cleaver, all out of the picture, at least in person, city chapters became mostly autonomous. 
and the Black Panthers, depending on where you were, ranged in activities and motivations from semi-legitimate community groups to violent criminal organizations, ones that could count on money from wealthy white liberals and celebrities and legal cover from radical attorneys. The Panthers themselves would soon be engaged in intra-party turf wars until chapters loyal to Huey Newton were at all-out war with chapters loyal to Eldridge Cleaver, especially the large and extremely radical New York chapter, both sides launching attacks and assassinations against each other, driven by paranoia and rivalry that was actively being encouraged by the FBI's counterintelligence program. Finally, inspired by Cleaver's call for armed rebellion, a bunch of New York Panthers are going to form the Black Liberation Army, a murderous group of hardened radicals with the single-minded goal of killing police officers, and they would kill dozens of them before they were finished, and engage in a crime spree to fund their operations throughout the next decade until by the late 1970s, with the civil rights movement castrated and, and scattered and the left in general just eviscerated, the remnants of the Black Liberation Army are just on a drug-fueled rampage of murder and robbery under the guise of revolutionary appropriations. And this is only half the story. The other half is way crazier. But that's next episode, when we find out what Jim Jones and his people have been up to all this time. America. America. America America You are so grand and golden Oh, I wish I was deep in America tonight America America I watched David Letterman in Australia Oh America You are so grand and golden I wish I was on the next flight to America Captain Christopherson Buck Sergeant Newberry Leatherneck Jones Sergeant Cash What an army What an air force What a marines America served my country America America
Afghanistan, Vietnam, Iran, Native America, America. Well, everyone's allowed a past. They don't care to mention America. America Well, it's hard to rouse a hog in Delta Then it can get tense around the Bible Delta Pig knuckle meat. Ain't enough tea, ain't enough tea, ain't enough tea. Ain't enough tea, ain't enough tea, ain't enough to eat. 